Hi, this is Steve. You know, almost every day on social media or through our Patreon page, we hear from fans that are shocked that we haven't covered a great film, important director, or brilliant actor. In fact, the longer we do this show, the more aware I am of how little we've actually covered. Now, this week's film doesn't just feature a director and two major stars we've never discussed, but arguably a whole genre. With rapid-fire dialogue, crazy situations, and love stories with far more conflict than romance, screwball comedies like It Happened One Night, Bringing Up Baby, and My Man Godfrey were a staple of the 30s and 40s, and director Howard Hawks was one of its most talented creators. In His Girl Friday, Howard Hawks cast one of the funniest leading men of this or any other era, Cary Grant, and to go toe-to-toe with him, the equally brilliant Rosalind Russell. This fast-paced movie is not only very funny, but cynical, hard-hitting, and occasionally very dark. So, if you haven't seen this classic film, head over to our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream His Girl Friday, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to us discuss how excited we are to finally go back to the movie theaters now that the restrictions are being lifted. So that's a discussion of going to the movies on Patreon and the 1940 Howard Hawks classic, His Go Friday, starring Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, and Ralph Bellamy, this Friday on The Cinephiles. I'm no suburban bridge player, I'm a newspaper man. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, here in Los Angeles, California uh, as well. So, yeah, that's all I say. <laughs> You know, I got, you know, what's funny is like saying things that people already know. It's like, well, well, do we have to say that Los Angeles is California? Is that going to be surprising to someone? I don't know. know. It's a good point. Well, maybe there are new people coming on who are just waking up to the world and don't know about us, don't know about Los Angeles, don't know about where it's located. So you never know. Well, maybe someday we'll get a review that says, you know what I love about the cinephiles? The geography. (laughs) They're really good at geography. (laughs) They just know where they are, you know? (laughs) On so many levels, on so many levels. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and where we are this week is we decided, you know, we, we haven't done an old movie in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going back to 1940 to a classic screwball comedy, His Girl Friday. Mm-hmm. John, do you remember how you first came to this film? Yes, it was to for this episode. I'd never seen this film before oh, really? my entire life. Yeah, and I I had heard about it, obviously. And, you know, as one of these uh, older films that I wanted to you know, Steve and I, months ago, we spoke about wanting to kind of open the door again to these older films. Uh, and uh, this was one of those ones that we kind of went back and forth about and kicked around were the options so when it was presented i'm like great this will be a great excuse to watch it finally once and for all and seeing rosalind see my memory of rosalind russell is mame it isn't 
the young Rosalind Russell, kind of like people who discover Faye Dunaway later on her, or not, sorry, um, uh, oh, uh, Joan Crawford later in her career right. versus Joan Crawford earlier in her career. This is a great way to take a look at the talent of Rosalind Russell and someone who should have gotten way more respect and love from older movie fans than she does because she is so commanding throughout this movie. And it was great to watch it for the first time on Amazon Prime uh, for this uh, recording. I, I think she's fantastic in the movie. I, yeah. And, and keeps up with this pace. Uh, I'll answer my question real quickly. Is mm-hmm. There was a time I think I've mentioned before on the show that when I first got a TiVo, and I this is early <laughs> 2000s, and I first discovered that you can just put in a name and have it automatically record anytime that name comes up. And I just yeah. put in... Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, Fritz Lang, all, Billy Wilder, William Wilder, all the great directors. Oh, yeah. And so my hard drive just uh, filled up with movies. And so that's when I watched this the first time yeah. um, among a lot of Howard Hawks, who I didn't really know that much about. Mm. And he's got just a crazy, very um, diverse career. He is all mm. over the place in terms of genre. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I, since this is our very first Howard Hawks movie, it's also our first Rosalind Russell movie. Yeah. It's also, I'm pretty sure, our first Cary Grant movie. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which seems crazy because he's obviously a huge star. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I went, well, I should do a bio on someone. Who, and I finally yeah. said, you know, I'm going I'm to do a bio on Howard Hawks. And I'll tell you, John. Yeah, he's got a very interesting life. I'm sure. And I have a feeling you're going to have a strong reaction <laughs> to certain <laughs> aspects of this guy's background because <laughs> okay, it, uh, it's yeah, you're gonna have, I mean, you might have a reaction to this. All um, right. So first of all, as I said, this guy is a master of multiple genres: mm-hmm. Scarface, classic crime, gangster uh, drama. Only angel has only angels have wings. This is a war movie. The Big Sleep, noir, Red River, Rio Bravo, westerns. Gentlemen prefer blondes, musical mm-hmm. comedy, and of course screwball comedies. I mean, this is so. This guy is all over the place. He's a real, real craftsman. He's born in Goshen, Indiana, in 1896. On his father's side, he his family goes way back. His family immigrated from England in 1630. Oh, That's wow. just after the Pilgrims. Whew. Yeah. On his mother's side, they were wealthy industrialists. Mm-hmm. So this kid grew up rich. It yeah. sounds like he grew up real, real rich. Mm-hmm. Um, his family is a lot of families from the Midwest did. They summered in Pasadena. And then yeah. moved permanently to Pasadena in 1910. He wasn't really a very good student, but for some reason, he got into Phillips Exeter Academy. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this extremely rich kid who wasn't a very good student would make it into Phillips, but Phillips Exeter, but he did. Mm-hmm. He At 18, he won the U.S. Junior Tennis Championship. Wow. Um, uh, he studied mechanical engineering at Cornell. It doesn't sound like he really spent much time studying. He spent a lot of time playing craps and drinking. Um, He did read a lot. Um, And then on vacation, summer vacation, he went over to Hollywood because he kind of was interested in the film industry. And he met this guy, this cinematographer named Victor Fleming, who would later direct Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz in the same year. And you know how they met? Well, they were both into auto racing and aviation because- I guess when you're rich, you kind of can. And so, and so Victor Fleming's like, you should come work on movie sets. So his first movie is working as a prop boy on a Douglas Fairbanks movie, which Fleming was the DP for. Mm -hmm. 
and then when the set designer didn't show up to for construction one day, Hawk said, well, I'll, I'll be the set designer. And so they said, sure, okay, you be the set designer. And then he switches <laughs> to that job. Fairbanks liked him, introduced him to Cecil B. DeMille, who liked him. And what's so crazy is that, like, you come to Hollywood or I come to Hollywood, you you start at the bottom and he comes yeah. to Hollywood and he immediately meets the yeah. top, top, top that you could possibly get to. He works for Mary Pickford on uh, the film, The Little Princess. And mm-hmm. one day the director, whose name was Marshall Nealon, didn't show up. And Howard Hawks went to Mary Pickford and said, well, I can direct today. And she said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. In 1917, he joins the army. He goes up to Berkeley uh, for his basic training. And you know who visited him at basic? Uh, no. Who? John Wayne? Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford. Oh, she just nice. went to visit. And so can you imagine this is the biggest Mary Pickford is the big, America's sweetheart, biggest star in the world shows up to visit you at basic. It's pretty, it pretty much separates you from everyone else. Yeah. Well, that's what they said. They said, you know what? Maybe we should send you off to be a, an aviation trainer. You know, we should just promote you to an all. I mean, you know, Mary Pickford. So yeah. he becomes an aviation trainer. He never seen, sees active service, but he's in Texas uh, training uh, pilots, which in World War One, this is flying the little biplanes and stuff, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. He goes back to Hollywood. You want to know how he gets his first job? First big job? How? Well, uh, Jack Warner, Warner Brothers, they were a little short on cash. So uh, Howard Hawks convinced his family to loan Warner Brothers a lot of money. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you really get uh, lifetime Hollywood acceptance is saving a studio. Right. Wow. This, is a, this is what just With Danny's you know. money. Oh, my God. Um, and they and in return, Jack Warner makes him a producer naturally. Oh, thanks, Jack. Uh, he produces a bunch of one real comedies. He might have directed some of them. He might not have. Uh, he left Warner's to form his own production company with family money. Um, and it sounds like there was a lot of partying like <laughs> him and other rich guys and movie stars and directors. There was a lot of a lot of drinking, a lot of women, a lot of fun, a lot of fast cars. Um, he directed his first film was Road to Glory, uh, which is lost. That no one, It does not exist anymore. There are several of his early films that are entirely disappeared. In 1930, Howard Hughes hires him to direct Scarface. And that's mm-hmm. the first time he works with Ben Hecht. Okay. Because he's a pilot, he gets hired for movies that involved flying he does the crowd roars because he was a race car driver because right. you know I, I i'm sort of fascinated by uh uber rich people hobbies like mm-hmm. oh i'd be a race car driver or yachting or things like that seems like the right. kinds of things he was doing he did 20th century which is one of the first screwball com- uh comedies did barbary coast and 38 he does bringing up baby which is one of the other movies that you and i considered doing yeah. when we picked uh, his girl friday yeah uh 41, he does Sergeant York. Have you ever seen that, by the way? No, I haven't seen Sergeant York. It's Gary Cooper, right? I think it's Gary Cooper. Yeah, I really liked it. I saw it in in the exact same era, in the TiVo era, but Mm. I really liked it a lot. That is his only time he got an Oscar nomination was for Sergeant York. Okay. Um, uh, He directs, this is just an infamous infamous movie in history, which is he directs The Outlaw, Mm. which is the Howard Hughes movie starring Jane Russell, where the story is that Howard Hughes designed a a new bra for her to show off her better show off her cleavage. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know if that's really true or not, but that's always <laughs> just a really strange story. Big Sleep in 46 with Bogart and Bacall, Red River in 48. He made remade his own movie. There's a movie he made called Ball of Fire, which he yeah. remade as A Song is Born with Danny Kaye, which I love. Have you ever seen that one? No, no, I've never seen Song is Born, no. Song is Born, the story is like, is Danny Kaye plays an intellectual music professor who's mm-hmm. trying to write an encyclopedia of music <laughs> and he's got mm-hmm. it's like in a living in a house with all these musicians and then he gets trapped by the mob and learns about jazz and goes all to these clubs and anyway really? it's got it's got tommy dorsey benny goodman and louis armstrong are all in the movie the music is great and wow i love danny k yeah um, yeah uh and uh He's also buddies with Ernest Hemingway, William mm-hmm. Faulkner. He's the guy who apparently introduced Faulkner to the Algonquin Roundtable. Wow. And apparently when Hemingway killed himself, it really, really messed him up. Oh, wow. Um, so that's this guy has an interesting, <laughs> really interesting life. To say the, the least, man. Wow. Well, um, but then, but this is... This is how they were back then, though, right, Steve? I mean, this isn't like what we see now with the even Spielberg was one of the last ones to kind of stumble into a career. Um, now you can't just walk on to into Hollywood and get handed stuff. It's really, really rare. Whereas back then it was still kind of the wild west of shooting. I mean, the studios were shooting films, 60 films a year or something like that, or one film a, a week. So they were really busy shooting multiple, multiple amounts of films. So there was less of a feeling of like, oh, you've got to earn your spot. It's like, well, if you can get in, get in. And if you find your way through it, great. Like an old boys network. That's right? just what I was going to say. It's yeah, like going to college network. or something like that. You just like, if you get in with the right people, you can get access to all this kind of stuff. And money certainly opens a lot of doors. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, like apparently, you know, he's he played poker with Irving Thalberg. And <laughs> so then Irving Thalberg said, hey, you should hire this Howard Hawks guy. You know, that's kind of how it worked for him. I exactly. do like he has a very no nonsense approach to directing. He is <laughs> not flashy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he defines yes. like his de- this is his definition of a good movie. A good movie is a movie with three great scenes and no bad ones. He's right. He's not wrong. It's good. And he's just very straightforward. He defines a good director as somebody who doesn't annoy you. <laughs> Again, seems on point. Uh, he was really po- He's one of these directors who was somewhat overlooked in the U.S., but the French mm. New Wave loved him. And then the new Hollywood people like Bogdanovich loved him. Uh, Bogdanovich did an interview with him and he asked him, do you think making movie? Do you think of making movies as an art? He says, no. What do you think of it? Howard Hawks' response is business fun. Um, And Bogdanovich asked him, what if someone said that you made art? He said, I wouldn't believe it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, this seems to make sense, right? If he's going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, to him, it's a job. To him, it seems simple. To him, it's something he can do, and he's good at it, and he makes these movies, and he's able to be successful in multiple genres, kind of like Billy Wilder and William Wyler, just these kind of like legendary directors who are known for really being great at multiple types of films and being successful at them. And so it seems like this is something he could naturally do, so there is no sense of like, artistry and blah 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 in his mind about it it's more like this is this is the job and i do it well and i'm and i but i don't need to get all this fanfare and maybe that's why people liked him in hollywood so much because he didn't get caught up with the ego stroking necessarily i i mean as much as i have 
I don't know, strong feelings about the dude who literally bought his way in to being a movie director, the attitude of just craftsmanship, I I really admire. Mm -hmm. That's, 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 you know, because there's just too much, sometimes movies take themselves way too seriously. I like someone who's like, no, this is a job. I go do my job. Mm -hmm. Um, Orson Welles said that Ford is poetry and Hawks is prose. Oh, that's a great description. Damn, that's a really good description. Okay. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought I mm-hmm. thought you'd like that. Yeah. Um, here's a little pre-production on His Girl Friday. Okay. It started as a play, the front page. Yes. Which is entire, which is is exactly the same plot and also entirely different. Front mm-hmm. page was written by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. Um, they were New York City reporters. The play. Uh, was produced in 1928 and it was a huge, huge hit. And I would say, and from everything I've read, the front page not only changed theater forever, but it changed Hollywood forever. It is the, it is really the first play where people talked in a streetwise, naturalistic, real way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is a play about reporters and it's a dark comedy. It, it doesn't take you on a moral journey. It takes mm-hmm. you on an amoral journey. It's very real and gritty. And it was immediately made in 1931 into a movie mm-hmm. starring Adolf Manjou and Pat O'Brien. And the thing mm-hmm. you might realize, notice is that these are two dudes because yeah. in the front page, Hildy Johnson is a man. Mm-hmm. And that, and it's a man who's about to get married to a fiance and an unscrupulous editor. And this was at the time, the fastest talking movie in the history <laughs> of film, which frankly, isn't that long because we're only a few years after the jazz singer. So it's True. not like we've had that many uh, movies. Um, and one of Hawks's desires was to break the record of speed. <laughs> he wanted his movie to be even faster. And he came up with the idea of what if we switch Hildy Johnson to being a woman. Oh. Which it was funny. The thing I was reading was this was kind of a common move in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like today, Hollywood wants IP that they can reuse and reformat, and we take yep. the same TV show and we do it over and over again. They used to do this was called the switcheroo. Change one element of the of the movie. So we change right. this character from a man to a woman, and then we can release the same story again. Yeah. Uh he calls up Ben Hecht nervously, going, Hey Ben. I kind of, what would you think of doing this? And Ben's response was, man, I wish I thought of it. (laughs) That's good. Um, Hecht and Hecht needed help on another project. So Howard Harks helped Ben Hecht with this project and Ben Hecht gave his permission. He wasn't the the head writer. The writer was Charles Lederer, but Ben Hecht worked on the script too. And Lederer was a Hecht disciple, basically. Mm, Um, Cary Grant signed on right away. Mm-hmm. Soon as they sold sold the idea to Harry Cohn in Columbia, Cary Grant is on board. At first, he wanted Carol Lombard, who he had directed in oh, 20th Century, yeah. but she was too expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cap- Catherine Hepburn, too expensive. Claudette Colbert and Ginger Rogers turned it down. He Then the next person he really wanted is Gene Arthur. Yeah. Who people may remember from Meet John Doe and yeah. Shane and a Mr. number of other Mr. Smith, yeah. She, she would have been great in this role, too. Mm-hmm. Um, she also turned it down. So finally, he went to Rosalind Russell. Rosalind Russell reads the script and says, why does Cary Grant have all the good lines? <laughs> so she hired her own writer to punch up her doll dialogue. That's awesome. Which Howard Hawks was fine with. Yeah, yeah. Um, wherever the, a good thing ca- came from, that was great. He didn't yeah. care. 
The movie was shot over two months in late 39. Uh, it went seven days over schedule because there's a lot of improvisation and they continually mm. were adding more jokes, more lines on the set. Um, and he encouraged his actors to push it, keep pushing it, keep pushing yeah. it, which they did. Yeah. Wow. It's a really interesting process, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I like this idea of approaching it in a new manner in that you change it to be a woman and also you adjust the script and then have her come in, Rosalind Russell come in and adjust some of those lines to make it work in the new scenario you've presented. So the fact that he has, um, as I said earlier, a little bit of a no ego about this situation and is open to more of a collaborative process, a little more improv and seeing what they can come up with. A, that's why you cast good actors and B, that's why you don't become too anal about making sure every line is said a certain way or every line is is honored. You let it flow a little bit so the actors have some ownership of these characters. In, a sense, in essence, Steve, although it's been done before, you're giving these characters new life so they're being presented in new ways so these actors have a little more freedom to create them in, an, in a new format and that's uh, that's a good thing. Uh, 100% agree. And what's interesting, though, and this is, you know, having now done this show for a long time, is that we've had movies where it's very much like this, where the director was like, wanted the actors to improvise, wanted the actors to bring in their own dialogue, their own moments. And that's awesome. And we have mm -hmm. other directors who have been, you will say every single word exactly as I wrote it. And those are terrific, too. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like you think of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, like mm. that is he has worked it out. You know, right, right. Um, and that's what you want. And then you think of, I mean, the, the one that pops to mind is not my favorite director, but Michael Bay, he wants to have actors that bring interesting stuff to the movie. Yeah. That's yeah. that's part of how he casts. Yeah. Um, I'll say one more thing before we get into this film, which is that mm -hmm. I, I, I might I mentioned before on the show that m my main process when we're prepping for a movie mm -hmm. is that if I'm watching with Karen, we'll watch it and I'm just typing as fast as I possibly can. And I'm writing down every camera angle, every line I can write down, everything. And if I if I get behind, I'll write, get quote, so I know to go back and listen to the line again <laughs> to make sure that I, I type it up correctly. Yep. Or I write describe, which means that there was a lot of interesting things going on in the scene. I don't have time to write it all down. Right. We're 10 minutes into this movie, and I threw my hands up. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's too much. I couldn't. I, there was no way. I typed fast, but I just yeah. couldn't. I couldn't even watch it. It was ha so much is happening. This movie, the dialogue is so, so fast. Yeah. That for the first time in years, I just, I just watched. Yeah. And then I had to go back and watch it again, going <laughs> like really slowly. It took me a while. I thought this is like a 90 minute movie. I thought this would be easy for me to prep for. It actually ended up being really hard wow. just because yeah. there's so much going on. And and I don't quite know how we'll talk about it because I certainly don't want to say all there's all the lines. There's like yeah. funny joke after funny joke after funny joke. But I don't yeah. know how to. So we're going to see how this goes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, we but, could, uh, yeah. yeah, we. I think we can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get through. Yeah. Um, it starts off with this very odd sort of text on screen. It all happened in the dark ages of the newspaper <laughs> game. When to a reporter getting that story justified anything short of murder. <laughs> and then, it, but ends with ready. And then, well, once upon a time. Yeah. And then we go into the newspaper office. We go right in through the press room and we follow Rosalind Russell, who enters with Ralph Bellamy. I totally mm -hmm. forgot that he was in this movie. 
And it's so funny because you, you know how I picture Ralph Bellamy. Yeah, so I think we, a lot of us of a certain age picture Ralph Bellamy from the Trading Places. From Trading Places. So, yeah. so seeing him as this young, good-looking guy was just such a different thing. Yeah. And Rosalind Russell is great. Oh, my gosh. Tell me, is the Lord of the Universe in? Yes, he's in. In a bad humor. Somebody must have stolen the crown jewel. Shall we announce you? Oh, no, no. I'll blow my own horns. She just comes in with such confidence. And you could see everybody likes her. She likes everybody. Wow. She's joking with everybody. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Where Where is this uh, at this point in, in Cary Grant's career? He's, he's known, right? But he's not the biggest star just yet. He's certainly a star, but he's not like what he's going to become when Philadelphia's story, which is in, in the same year. So this is, is this feels like we're seeing the change in Cary Grant in his career. This is the film, one of the films that really starts to make the turn for him because he does this film and Philadelphia story in the same year, then Arsenic and Old Lace is a couple of years later. And that's where he really kind of establishes himself as Cary Grant. And then we move forward into so much more of his life, of work and whatever. Uh, the Bishop's Wife, Catch a Thief, all of that coming fair to remember coming a little bit later in his career. So this is so fascinating. For those of you who maybe discovered Cary Grant in the, in, for his movies in the 50s, He's more debonair. He's more suave. He's more chill. The Cary Grant you get here is during his more younger, manic, frantic delivery of of uh, characters here in line deliveries. So it's a kind of a jarring thing to watch both versions of uh, of uh, uh, Cary Grant, like watching Pacino in his younger years versus right. Pacino now. Yeah, um, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because then, you, of course, you made me go look at his filmography, which mm. I hadn't looked at before. Man, he comes on real strong right around this time. Yeah, because bringing a baby, baby is 38. Gunga Din is 39. Angel, mm-hmm. Only Angels Have Wings is 39. And His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story are are 40. And Suspicion is 41. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of great movies coming out in a really short space of time. Yeah. And what's so funny is he's one of these guys. We talked about other people like that is that he is a character actor in an ingenue body. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yes. He, yes. Cause he played, I mean, he's a very handsome man, mm-hmm. but he plays a really odd character, particularly in this movie. And we meet Cary Grant. He's in his office. We hear that there's something going on with the governor and a reprieve and someone named Earl Williams who's, you know, going to hang tomorrow. And we don't quite know what all that is. And Mm -hmm. in comes Rosalind Russell. And as soon as they're talking together, it is rapid fire. It is funny. And it is clear that they have a fascinating relationship. Yeah, and and smartly so here. And this worked out for the film. You know, sometimes people turn roles down because it's not supposed to be that person who is in the role, right? And Rosalind Russell comes in, immediately commands the screen. And the thing about Rosalind Russell is this is a woman who was trained as a theatrical actress. And by that, I mean in the theater. She had a lot, she had a number of training there in New York. She went and it was in the American Academy of Dramatic Art. She and her intention was to teach acting that's Mm. what she was going after initially and then kind of got these kind of smaller parts and worked her way up you know she was not Howard Hawks on the acting side of things she was very much doing the smaller roles and then this opportunity came to her but she was already 
perfectly primed to take advantage of this opportunity because of her chops on stage. Mm. So doing a play version of this and her uh, desire to write her own lines, uh, Steve, or kind of adjust some of the lines makes so much, you know, Carrie Fisher did that with the Star Wars series. It makes so much sense when you have a woman who understands the situation, understands her confidence and her knowledge in this and can adjust certain things so that she can be an equal with the male star there, you know, at that time when really that wasn't 100% the way a lot of men approach that when they were making these films. So to have her kind of state her presence, state her claim, and people allow her to do that, I think uh, served the movie really, really well. Well, and I can't think of a lot of movies, very few, Mm. where there is a female character that is as strong and Mm -hmm. smart and capable and goes toe to toe with her boss in a professional way. Yeah. As much as this, you know, because she comes in and literally just kicks ass at every moment. And Mm -hmm. and, and just as a sample, because we can't go through all of these lines and all these jokes of what their relationship is like. She comes in the office. She says, mind if I sit down? And he says, gesturing to his knee. There's been a lamp burning in the window for you, honey. Here. Oh, I jumped out that window a long time ago, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> right? And it's it's I think I think this is also a gift that Hawks has. He has a lot of strong women in his movies. Because maybe to Hawks, this is an this is what he respected. Strong men, strong women in the movies, and both get made fun of, both have their flaws, both have their positive sides as well. And this is this film itself is an example of that. And numerous films he's done are examples of that. And you see that she's immediately like not gonna fall for that old stuff that men were doing back then, as we saw in shows like Mad Men and whatever, this idea of the male treating the woman as lesser than is a part of the story, you know? And we see that later on, certainly with a character when these newspaper men are are completely d- uh, dismissing her later on, Molly, M- Molly McGrath, Molly Walker, whatever her name is, later on in the film. But here you see this is a woman who's commanding her presence and is not going to give in to any of his nonsense. Well, what's so funny, and this is uh, just spoiler alert about what their relationship is. One of the things, first of all, we find out they're recently divorced. Like she, she just yep. went to Reno and Bermuda because you have to be out of town at this era to make the divorce final, which they do. Um, But the weird thing about their relationship is that she sees, she knows all his tricks. She knows Mm -hmm. all his moves. He is a scummy guy in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And on some level, she likes it. Yep. And on what level that is, is really a lot of what the movie is about. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we should say we just saw her with Ralph Bellamy, who is her fiance, and he is sweet and romantic and simple. And now we're seeing her with her ex-husband, who is this is this is what I wrote down about Cary Grant, by the way. I wrote Cary Grant's particular brand of swaggering, mischievous, self-aggrandizing, (laughs) self-interested, arrogant smarminess is kind of amazing. (laughs) and it works yeah well and and this is the thing is that he is a horrible horrible person yeah he is pretty much he's a newspaper man he's a newspaper man well i'll tell you what's weird about this is it's so ridiculous the things that are happening in this movie and how horrible these people all and just self-interested uncaring all these people are Mm -hmm. and i went yeah Pretty much. That's pretty much because I think about the news today mm-hmm. and the way stories are treated and the way people are treated. And it's like, you know, just to sell time on TV or whatever yeah. or to get hits on YouTube. It's yeah. kind of the same. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I think that I was having a lot of conversations with myself as we as I watched this movie, Steve, because this movie pretty much, uh, you know, fake news has been the big slang uh, or, or, or term that people have been throwing around for the last few years now. And, and people's hatred of the press, people's questioning of the press and how the press can destroy you. You know, this is not a new concept. And so seeing it now uh, become such a huge part of our national discourse, you watch a movie like this in retrospect, 70 some years later uh, or 80 years later, almost. And it's got, it's, it's still resonant. You know, and I always push back on people who go, oh, I don't watch movies in black and white or I don't go watch those. That's an old movie, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not like we got brains in the 1970s. You know, human beings have been around discussing difficult concepts since the dawn of time. And going back and watching these movies gives you a better understanding of how unimportant you really fucking are. People have come up with these ideas before. So understand that you're part of the grander firmament. You're not some kind of genius coming up with a new concept. This has been around a long time. Ignorance is no excuse for believing that you're somehow novel in your approach to things. And if you're going to analyze film and understand film, you've got to go back and watch the classics. I don't trust anybody's opinion who hasn't gone back and watched a number of these classics to understand that these concepts that you're watching in these newfangled movies are have have uh, uh, have been talked about, discovered, or explored before in previous films decades earlier. Certainly throughout this film, I found myself confronting that truth all over again. I think that the, those are great points, both in terms of our world and how we've yeah. been facing the same stuff since the beginning and about movies that are the way we're telling stories evolves from somewhere. Like, yeah, it comes from somewhere. And it's like you, you think about like you could watch Star Wars and you could totally love Star Wars and enjoy it. And that's great. Yeah. But if you go back and you read Joseph Campbell, that changes your enjoyment of Star Wars. Great point. You know, yeah. or if you go back and see Hidden Fortress in the Kurosawa films or the yes. or or the you know the old street and you understand, oh, this is where George Lucas was coming from. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change Star Wars, mm -hmm. but it changes the way you see it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and also this concept, and I want to make sure this is clear, and I want to make sure I walk into this minefield correctly, but this concept of somehow we never had powerful women playing powerful characters until the 2000s is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. Once again, if you don't go back in time and watch Betty Davis, watch Rosalind Russell, watch Catherine Hepburn, these are not women who doted at the knees of their men in these films. These are very strong women, and that's just three of them. There's a number of roles of women who were very powerful and strong in these black and white films. Films where they state their presence. Now, do they have as many roles? No. Was the predominant nature of the woman role to be at the service of the man for a majority of these films? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that there weren't films like His Girl Friday and a number of other films where uh, uh, where strong, confident, powerful actresses, even in a man's world, were able to command their space, command respect, command their money. Mary Pickford started a studio, for yep. God's sake, with people at United Artists. So there, there were very strong, powerful women back then as well. It's just that now people are embracing removing these old conventional approaches to how women were presented over the last few decades. So I just want to make that clear and hope I haven't pissed anyone off with that. The thing is, is that things change. And yes. that, but that doesn't mean that we can't look at these films and see great stuff. And I think the point that you make, which is so important, is that Rosalind Russell's character, Hildy Johnson, 
being totally strong mm. in a completely male dominated world is in a lot yeah. of ways more powerful, you yes. know, because yes. but because the difficulty is so much higher. Um, <laughs> at one moment, uh, Cary Grant just starts making a speech to her about how awesome <laughs> she is. And she interrupts it and says, uh, you're repeating yourself, Walter. That's the speech you made the night you proposed. Yeah, I know that you still remember it. Of course, I remember it. If I didn't remember it, I wouldn't have divorced you. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't say he one of the interesting things about Cary Grant is he never says, I love you, I want you back. No. Never says that. Yeah, so I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fellow lose all faith in himself. Gives him a almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. <laughs> what I think is cool about their relationship is that even when she hates him. Yeah. She has such a good rhythm with him oh, that yeah. she enjoys it. You know what I mean? Yes. She's yes. having a great time fighting with him. Uh, I love his response about divorce. He says, Nonsense. You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words mumbled over you by a judge. We've got something between us. Nothing can change. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, I and when he said that, Steve, I actually paused the movie for just a second because I or a few seconds because I was like, you know what? I've never thought of divorce like marriage in that that's a <laughs> lifetime thing. It doesn't have to be a lifetime thing. You could come back. And certainly the, the, the world is littered with people who divorced at a younger age and then found themselves reacquainted later on in life and got married again. So, you know, you just never know. Well, and and I like basically marriage and divorce are just constructs. You know, they're just things that we agree that mean something. It's like, right. and you think about particularly in our day and age where most people, I don't know if it's most, many, many, many Americans, they live together before they get married. Yes. You yes. Know? So it's like the distance between someone who's lived together for five years and then gets married and goes back to the same house and the same bed that they left the morning before and yeah. the distance between someone who's living with their mother and is never and is a virgin and then goes and gets married <laughs> and has, there's a big difference, you know? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and now of course she reveals that not only we know they're divorced, but that she is in fact getting married and she's getting married tomorrow. Yeah. What do you think about this? Let me, let me, let me talk, ask you a question, Steve. This is the old trope, isn't it? Like you get divorced from the guy who was, you know, the fast talker. The He probably was a little bit of, I'm sure he was a flirter like crazy. Uh, he does respect her to a degree. She res, she respects him back and forth, but they are they are tough with each other. They are, she wanted another life. She right. had enough of the move. She was in a transition place. She didn't want to be a newspaper reporter anymore. She wanted to go have kids. She wants, so she finds the complete opposite of Cary Grant, a guy who's a bit wide-eyed about the world, who's very nice, who takes people as they are. He thinks Cary Grant's the nicest guy, which we'll get to <laughs> in a little bit. Like, But he's a bit of a, a gullible guy, and she wants to go have this version or her idea of what she thinks might be a perfect life. Let me find someone completely different. It's essentially a rebound, Steve, uh, and, and she's going to go be with, with him. Do you ever believe that she believes she's going to do this for real? It's so funny. This is the exact question I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think, and because I went through the movie twice and very carefully, yeah. the more I think about it, the more I think maybe she thought that she was going to marry this guy. But right. I think deep down, she never thought she was going to marry this guy. <laughs> like, we know right from the beginning that Cary Grant, his character's name is Walter Burns, is yeah. going to do everything in his power to get her back. Yes, 
But it, she actually wants, as you point out, is way more ambiguous. Yes. Um, right. By the way, when he first hears that she's got another offer, he thinks it's an offer, another offer on another paper. <laughs> and he's, you know, offering to give her a raise and anything to get her back working in that when she, when she realizes that, no, it's an offer of marriage, he goes, well, then you don't get a raise. <laughs> oh, you're wonderful in a loathsome sort of way. Now, will you please be quiet just long enough for me to tell you what I came up here to say? After he realizes that she's getting married and getting married tomorrow, he's immediately scheming, which yep. is he calls his editor or whoever it is, Duffy, and says, send his best reporter away. He mm -hmm. already knows he's got to create a situation where he needs her in order to keep her around. And this is the right. other question I want to bring up. We brought up, like, did she ever intend to marry Bruce? Mm -hmm. My question is, does Walter Burns want Hildy Johnson back more for mm. marriage or as a reporter? Uh, I think neither. I <laughs> think he wants her back more for his ego. <laughs> I think that's that's great, what I think. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a great scene in uh, Company, the musical Company from Stephen Sondheim, mm -hmm. and it's when he's singing, was, is it Billy? Yeah, Billy, is it Bobby? No, Bobby. Bobby. When Bobby, Bobby has taken home that um, flight attendant. Right. And he can't even remember her name. And the song is Barcelona. Yeah. And the whole time he is, and it's, which is, by the way, it's one of my top five favorite Sondheim songs. And he, the whole time he's having this back and forth with her and he's trying to convince her to stay with him, to stay the night, to stay the morning, to, you know, let's have some fun. Cause that's what he wants to right. do. He has a job to go to. She's got responsibilities uh, and she's a little tempted, but she can't stay. She doesn't want to hurt his feelings, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, when she, when he does convince her to stay, she says, well, okay, well, maybe I will stay. And he goes, what? He's like, damn, what have I done? Because he enjoyed the banter of trying to keep her. He actually didn't want to keep her. He just enjoyed the banter of back and forth and her saying no. So I think it was his ego wanting to keep her. But once he gets her, he actually doesn't want her. It was the ego of trying to get her. So that's the thing that sometimes happens with both men and women. The chase matters more Absolutely. than the capturing and once you capture that you don't longer want it anymore and there's really psychiatric psychological stuff you explore about that but i think this is where this guy operates it's the i'm telling you you can't have this nobody tells me i can have i can't have something i'm gonna get it by any means necessary no matter who gets hurt in the process but once i get it I, i'm gonna push it out to sea so i don't know by, by the way i think company is an amazing show Hell yeah. I, when I first saw it, I kind of like, well, that was weird. And then as I've grown older, like, because no. the whole show is what you're talking about is all of this nuance between what someone thinks they want and what they really want and right. their insecurities. And there's so many great songs like um, Not Getting Married, Being Alive, yeah. Ladies Who mm -hmm. Lunch. Like, it is a great, great Sondheim musical. Um, but we're not yeah. talking Sondheim right now. <laughs> you mad all you want to, Hilly, but you can't quit the newspaper business. Oh, well, why not? I know you, Hildy. I know what quitting would mean to you. Well, what would it mean? It would kill you. <laughs> you can't sell me that, Walter Burns. Who says I can't? You're a newspaper man. That's why I'm quitting. I want to go someplace where I can be a woman. You mean be a traitor. And the thing is, Walter's right. Yeah. She is a newspaper man. Yeah. You know? She is. Uh, but she goes off on what being a reporter is, which is a pretty slimy worldview of being a yeah. reporter. And we find out a little bit more about Bruce, that he's not rich, that he's 
an insurance man that they're going to have to live with her mother, with his mother. <laughs> they're going to take the train today at four o'clock, take the yeah. sleeper up to Albany. Tomorrow they're getting married. Mother is coming with them on the train, which will keep them, you know, all respectable. Of course, of course. He doesn't treat me like an errand boy either, Walter. He treats me like a woman. How did I treat you? Like a water buffalo? I don't know from water buffaloes, but I do know about him. And Walter wants to meet Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> and this is just a classic thing we'll see throughout the movie. They head out of his office. He doesn't hold the door for her. He doesn't help her. He doesn't wait for her. There is nothing uh, gentlemanly about Walter. <laughs> not not even a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that he walks up to an old man. Must be some mistake. I'm already married. Does he actually <laughs> think that old man is Bruce? No, of course not. He's <laughs> He's totally digging the knife in a little bit uh, at his expense, at Bruce's expense. Yeah. And then turns around. There's Ralph Bellamy holding an umbrella. Walter shakes the umbrella rather than shaking his hand. (laughs) And when the old guy tries to talk to him, he says, Who are you? My name's Pete Davis. Well, Mr. Davis, is this any concern of yours? No. Well, from now on, I thank you to keep your nose out of my affairs. (laughs) So he immediately throws the old man under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And what's so funny is that Walter is making fun of Bruce. Yes. Hildy can see he's making fun of Bruce. Yep. Bruce has no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. All going over his head. You always carry an umbrella, Bruce? Well, it looked a little cloudy this morning. That's right. Rubbers too, I hope. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Like, Cary Grant may stand out. Russell Russell stands out. But playing the guy who's not aware of what's happening is very, very difficult for an actor. And people don't factor that into their minds uh, more. Ralph Bellamy is no perfect as a guy who is, you know, kind of being taken advantage of, doesn't understand he's being taken advantage of, and he has to play it this way. So he does have the explosion later on in the film. It's earned because of what you've seen him go through throughout the movie. Well, and it's like they're moving at 100 miles an hour and he's moving at 30 miles an hour. Yeah. And yeah. he's just not keeping up, you know? No, not in any way, shape or form. This just isn't his world. This yeah. isn't his world. And they decide, let's go to lunch. So this lunch scene, it took four days to shoot. Wow. It's largely in one shot. There's a, a part of what took so long was there's lots of ad libs. They kept adding new lines. They kept adding mm-hmm. new moments. And this is one of the first movies to have seriously overlapping dialogue. Uh-huh. Um, and at the time, they didn't have multi-track recording, which is so normally, particularly if I'm shooting overlapping dialogue, is you have a mic, a lavalier, which is like a wireless mic on each mm-hmm. actor. You have a guy with a boom who's also miking them. And I get different. Each actor's audio is isolated so that I can hopefully cut them together in ways that work because when you're doing overlapping dialogue, one of the things that makes it hard is an actor can, it's almost impossible for an actor to cut off the other actor at exactly the same time. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just would be really, really tough. So if I'm cutting from one shot to another shot and on shot one, the actor cut them off a word earlier and the shot two, they cut them off a word later. It makes that cut hard to make because the the rhythm will shift. And so having multi multi tracks of audio allows me to play around with that a little bit. And, and, and particularly I might be that I use one actor's line from one take when they're off camera and a different actor's line from a different take when they're on camera, things like that. They didn't have that technology then. And this is what they said was that the guy who was recording would be switching the mic on and off throughout the scene. Mm. I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how that works. Um, but it seems really, this was really difficult to do. And one of the, this is what, what they did to make the overlapping dialogue work on tons of the lines. The last two words of the sentence were unimportant. 
Oh. So when someone cut them off and you didn't quite hear those last two words, and sometimes the first two words of the sentence were unimportant, mm -hmm. so that then you got the middle part, which was which was what was important. Right. That's that's sophisticated craftsmanship there. Yeah, but troubleshooting the situation to make it work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so first they just start talking about the marriage. And I love that <laughs> that uh, Hildy lights her cigarette and Walter grabs her hand with the lit matched and uses her hand to light his own <laughs> cigarette. Uh, how's it feel, Bruce? Feels awful good. Yes, sir. Well, you're getting a great little girl for yourself. I realize that. Well, you're getting something else, too, Bruce. You're getting a great newspaper man. You know all kids, Walter. <laughs> and she, he's offering to have her come back. And Bruce, who's so nice, goes... Well, are you sure you want to quit? Maybe you should go back. I mean, if you really love being a newspaper man. Why I wouldn't let her stay. No, no, she deserves all this happiness, Bruce. All the things I couldn't give her. Because Walter is framing himself as a generous, kind, considerate person who really cares about Hildy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and of course, we know that this is BS. Hildy knows that it's BS. The only person who doesn't know is Bruce. <laughs> very true and, and then they talk about albany and i love that uh Cary grant just bursts into this huge fake laugh <laughs> because they had some experience in albany that had something to do with the governor i was in taking a bath while i came walking out without so he is telling a really off-color story about his relationship to hildy mm -hmm. and hildy kicks him under the table and it's on purpose. And this oh, is on purpose. Oh, yeah, of course it's on purpose. Is that he is purposely doing things to mess up their relationship. He's not a good guy. Let's let's put that on the table now as as as, as Steve mentioned earlier. He's not a good guy. He's a, he's a guy that's difficult to like, which is why you cast someone like Harry Grant. You have to somewhat like this guy against your better judgment. Just like uh Hildy does. You have to like this guy against your better judgment, and that's why casting Harry Grant is just perfect. Well, and this is the thing, you know, there's the the screenwriting uh rule called save the cat, which is that save the cat means you want to have your character do something that's morally good early in the movie so that people will like that character. Like, yeah. it, like an example is we get introduced to Aladdin who's a thief. And just to balance out the fact that he is a criminal is yeah. that he gives his food to kids that are hungrier than him at the end of the um, oh, one step ahead of the, whatever that song yeah. is, he gives mm -hmm. the food to the kid, the hungry kids. And that is a save the cat moment. That means he showed, he did something good and now we can like him because he's good at heart. Right. And there's times where that's absolutely what the screenwriter has to do, that the movie has to do this. This is the opposite. Cary right. Grant, there's no, this is a terrible, terrible person yep. who we're still like in a movie kind of way. Uh, there's more things that he says that Bruce doesn't catch that Hildy kicks him for. At one point, she kicks the waiter. <laughs> yes. She's like, oh, oh, sorry. My foot must have slipped. And then uh, Walter very clearly purposely p spills his drink on himself, mm -hmm. gets up, goes to the waiter, says, when I sit down at the table, say that I have a phone call. He goes and sits down at the table, uh, and the waiter comes back. Mr. Burns, uh, telephone. For me? Yes, sir. That's strange. I love that Bruce says, you know, Hildy, he's not such a bad fellow. No, he should make some girl real happy. Mm -hmm. And under her breath, she says, laugh happy. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of like him. 
He's got a lot of charm. Well, he comes by it naturally. His grandfather was a snake. <laughs> the jokes, the jokes just keep on coming in this in this yeah. movie. Uh, what the audience, uh, and maybe you guys know this unconsciously or subconsciously, but like the ability to deliver dialogue like this is very very difficult and you can see for example if you go watch Hudsucker Proxy Jennifer Jason Lee is essentially doing an homage to Rosalind Russell to Jean Arthur to a number of these women who played these role Catherine Hepburn back in the 40s but she doesn't have the style to do it she's a great actress don't get me wrong but certainly you know Hateful Eight and numerous other things that she's been incredible in um, she doesn't have that thing that thing you need to have to be able to deliver. Margot Kidder had it in totally. spades. Totally. Superman had it in spades. It's a natural thing. It's an organic thing. You've got to have it in your essence. I don't think it can be trained. I think that's something that you have to have in your essence or it comes off put on. And Rosalind, it is very organic. Yep. It is very much uh, uh, believable how she's delivering these jokes. So the jokes aren't like, see what I did there? The jokes are more just like, yeah, just kind of tossed off a little bit, but they're there for you to enjoy and laugh your butt off at. And she's great at that. Well, and this is the thing that's just so important to understand about casting. People think that casting is a competition to find the best actor. And whoever the best actor is, then that's the person I'm going to cast. Yeah, exactly. It isn't that. It's casting is about finding the right actor. Right. You know, there was, there was a, when we were casting the assistants, there was a guy who came in who's a friend of Vicky's, whose name I don't, a, good fr- a friend of a good friend of ours, mm-hmm. you know, an actor that's been on TV and stuff like that. He came in, he auditioned for the lead. He's an amazing actor. And I said to him, wow, you're such a, you're so great. And look, look, you're not right for this part. Can you come back for this other part? So he comes back for the other part and he auditioned. And I went, man, you're great, but you're actually not like right for this part. We brought him in for three roles mm-hmm. and he's not in the movie because he just didn't fit them. And this mm-hmm. is what, you know, Karen is a casting director. When you see actors that you like, she has people she brings in over and over and over again because yes. she loves them trying to find the part that's a fit, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, and, and again, as we said before, you know, in a professional level, being a good actor, that's the price of admission. Yes. You know, right. That gets you through the door. That's that's the what the buy-in. The right. buy-in is you being a good actor. Can you can you win the hand? It, there's so many factors. There's so many factors that are in your control and out of your control as well. But yeah, you're right, Steve. The right actor. Yeah. And, and and yes, there are a very few actors like Meryl Streep who could play anything. I right. I, I can't imagine there's any role that she wouldn't be able to play. You know, because right. she's that kind of an actor. But most actors. There's certain things that they're perfect for and certain things that they're not, you know? Right, right. Um, Like, you know, Robert Redford was supposed to play Rocky. Yes, yes. You know, that that doesn't really make sense. And and Michael Corleone. They wanted him, they'd considered him for Michael Corleone, too. Why are you going to have a blonde-haired, blue-eyed mafia guy? This makes no sense. Well, and Robert Robert Redford's a really good actor. Yeah, sure. But he's not the person to play those parts. Nope. Um, so uh, he's made sure that Sweeney, his head reporter, is out of the way. He comes back to the table and immediately starts talking about the Earl Williams case, which is this guy who shot a cop. And it's not just that he's going to hang tomorrow, but it's also political because it, it he shot what they say is a colored cop. And that vote is really important to the mayor's race. And so mm-hmm. the mayor needs to make sure that they hang him tomorrow because it's two days from the election. And that's what's going to get him elected. Right. Right. And Walter sets a perfect trap, which is... Well, uh, what's your scheme, Hildy? Look, Walter, 
You get the interview with Earl Williams. Uh -huh. Print Egelhofer's statement. Yeah, yeah. And right alongside of it, you know, double column. Uh -huh. Run your interview. Same. Alien says he's sane. Interview shows he's goofy. Oh, Hildy, you could do it. You could save that poor devil's life. Uh -huh. You could. And then she realizes that Walter is trapping her by getting her yeah. interested in the story. But Bruce is going, well, how long would the interview take? Hildy, we could take the six o'clock train if it would save a man's life. No, Bruce. Does Walter care about Earl Williams' life? No, of course not. I don't think he cares about anybody's life but his own. Does Hildy care about Earl Williams' life? Maybe more than Walter. Yeah, that's my answer, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe more than Walter. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. she's not being swayed by the... I mean, because I think she believes that she could conceivably save his life. Yeah. But she's like, no, because this is a trap Walter is trying to set for me, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Walter starts working on Bruce. All through the years, you'll remember that the man went to the gallows because she was too selfish to wait two hours. I tell you, Bruce Earl Williams' face had come between you on the train tonight and at the preacher's tomorrow and all oh, the rest stop, of your life. Stop, stop. <laughs> And yeah. Bruce is sold, you know? Yeah, yeah, he's on board. And the reason that he says that Sweeney is gone is that he just had twins. And right at this moment is when Hildy remembers. I just remembered Sweeney was only married four months ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Hildy, you win. I'm licked. Then Mr. Sweeney didn't have twins. <laughs> Wait, they're not twins? What? I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> He said the twins were in uh, what's his face's mind. Yeah. So the next the next move is Walter offers to get a life insurance policy. Come on, Bruce. Oh, I wouldn't use my wife for business purposes. Wait a minute, Bruce. Walter, how big a policy? Oh, twenty five thousand, fifty thousand. What's the commission on a hundred thousand dollar policy? Around a thousand dollars. But what's me. wrong with a thousand dollars? I couldn't. We could it. use that money, Bruce. How long would it yeah. take to get him examined? Because Hildy, you know why? I think Hildy doesn't want to live with mother. <laughs> yeah and then just before they leave and hildy's gonna go off to report on this story she asks uh bruce to give him her all his money which mm -hmm. is five hundred dollars all the money they have in the world believe me dear i know what i'm doing he'd get you in a crap game or Hildy, something i don't gamble i know a lot of people that never did anything they met walter burns please dear <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the press room new lead on the hanging this alienist from new york dr max j egelhofer uh, Egelhofer. Yeah, he's going to interview Williams in about half an hour in the sheriff's office. That must be about the tenth alienist they've put on Williams. <clears throat> if he wasn't crazy before, he would be by the time ten of those babies got through psychoanalyzing him. Did that word alienist pop out at you, John? No, not at all, because one of my favorite novels, or maybe my favorite novel ever, is called The Alienist from Caleb Carr. And they did a TV series of it on TNT for a couple of seasons recently. Uh, and of course, alienist is what they used to call psychiatrists or, or psych psychologists back in the turn of the century so and into the 19 um, into the early 1900s and obviously here in the 1940s or 30s as well when they're doing this movie so that's it didn't stand out to me at all just funny how we've changed how we address that term now as opposed to what it was called back then well and it's funny because it jumped out at me because i knew that was one of your favorite books oh okay <laughs> um i thought you meant did it surprise me first time hearing but no yes, no no actually it did put a smile on my face that's what i thought say. um yeah. and in comes hildy it's not just that she's one of the boys it's that she is awesome you know what i mean like yeah. she is yep. and they love her and she is so smart and so quick that 
she's one of these people that every room she walks into, the whole room turns to her. Yeah. Um, And she says, I'm getting married. And they don't believe that she's going to leave the newspaper business because, like Walter Burns said, she's a newspaper man. Can you picture Hildy singing lullabies and hanging out daddies? (laughs) Popping lies over the back fence. No, I can't be back as soon as she gets tired of beating rugs. I'm not going to beat any rugs. I don't. And in the midst of them talking about Hildy and the newspaper business, we hear a big thunk because right outside the window is the gallows and they are testing it by dropping things through the trap door. Oh man. So much. This is what's funny, Steve, throughout the movie, there's great banter and funny stuff. Obviously the stakes between them are, are never played for too serious because that would seem that would make him a really not nice person. But the gallows thing is just hanging right around the edge of this and the murder of this. And then later on, of course, when Homie jumps through the window with the gun in his hand, there's a little bit of a darker edge around all this funniness that's going on, which I thought was brilliant of Howard Hawks to be able to walk that line between the two. Well, this is what's weird about the movie is that it is light and bantering and fun and fun and fun. And then not just a little heavy and or a little dark, but really heavy and dark. Yeah. And I wonder if people listening to this podcast are watching this movie for the first time, I'd love to hear how you feel about that. Like, how do you feel about yeah. these shifts in tone? We're back with Walter. He's getting a doctor's exam for this insurance policy. And the whole scene <laughs> is Walter a saying that he's been a bad husband and he's so happy that Hildy has Bruce. And then he goes on this, Bruce asks, who's going to be the beneficiary of this when he dies? And Walter goes, well, Hildy, of course. Oh, I don't know. That'd make me feel pretty funny. Oh, now, why shouldn't I make Hildy my uh, whatever it was? You know, I feel I should take care of her. Look, Bruce, this is a debt of honor with me. I was a bad husband to Hildy. And Walter paints himself, A, as the nicest person in the world who cares so (laughs) much about Hildy that he just wants to make sure that she's happy. And simultaneously, he keeps talking about her as old when Hildy gets old and she'll be really old. Can you picture her, Bruce, when she's old? <laughs> Just keeps hammering that point home. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says, and remember, I love her, too. Yes, I'm beginning to realize that. Maybe she'll think kindly of me after I'm gone. And he wipes a tear from his eye, then notices that Bruce isn't looking at him, taps him on the shoulder. So Bruce looks up and wipes and sees him wiping the tear from his eye. Um, And he gives Bruce a certified check for $2,500, which is a ton of money in 1940. Yeah. It was more than the $1,000 that he was going to get for that insurance company. Yeah. Well, now, uh, look, Bruce, I don't want you to carry that check around in your pocket. Well, because, yes, yes, I know all that, but, uh, Bruce, uh, there's an old newspaper superstition that the first big check you get, you put in the uh, lining of your hat. And all the reporters in the room go, what? I've been a reporter for 20 years. I never heard that before. Neither did I. I know it sounds silly, dear, but do it for me, please. (laughs) While this is going on, Cary Grant, outside the room, grabs Louie, who is the clearly the gangster guy. Yeah. And he's kind of short, so he lifts him up so Louie can see what Bruce looks like and points to him. Do all newspaper guys have a a, a, a former mafia dude on their on their payroll, former mafia hood on their payroll? Well, I, and I don't think he's former. <laughs> I think you're right. Well, and this is the thing. It's not just that Walter Burns is ruthless. He is completely amoral and self-interested. 
He, yeah. and we're going to see it. He does things that are just terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know how um, in uh, Seinfeld, there's just this slow realization that these four characters are actually horrible people. Like you don't quite get yes. it when you first yes. watching Seinfeld, but by the time, yeah. you know, George's fiance dies from licking the stamps and they just kind of go, whatever. You're like, yeah. oh, these are, these people are awful. And I remember when the, the finale happened and the finale kind of went out with a whimper is that I think they turned the corner to being so terrible that we couldn't really even like them anymore. Yeah, it was a little weird. It's almost like he, like they wanted to kill their creation by turning them into these, by finally making them pay for being terrible people. It's like, no, we didn't want that. The audience didn't yeah. want that because what you did to the audience was make them feel bad for ever liking these people. That's exactly it. And that was such a colossal mistake as a, as a finale, for sure. If people want to bash the Game of Thrones stuff or the Lost finale, please bash the Seinfeld finale. They turned on us. You know, it makes no sense. It, it just goes to the thing that we've said many times about many creators like George Lucas, um, like the Wachowskis, where like you make this great thing and then it seems like you didn't understand what was great about the thing that you made. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely um, true. Uh, and this, but this movie is also walking the line of having us like Walter, a truly, truly terrible person. And then Hildy Johnson, who is maybe not that far behind him, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And right now she's going, wants to interview Earl Williams. She, she bribes the guard. She goes in and this to, to your earlier point, the gallows set and this set, this is like a heavy space. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is beautiful. There's this cage in the middle of the room. And Earl Williams is this, his character, there's nothing funny going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically she interviews him and she is looking for something to paint him as crazy. So you see, I couldn't plead insanity because I'm just as sane as anybody else. You didn't mean to kill that policeman, huh? Well, of course not. It's against everything I've ever stood for. They know it was an accident. I'm not guilty. It's, it's just the world. And yeah. what she finds is this guy, after he lost his job, was sort of wandering the park, and there are all these radical speakers there, and there's this one speaker that talks about, that sounds like a communist or something, that talks mm -hmm. about uh, production for use, um, and this idea that everything has its purpose, and she goes, well, what's the purpose of a gun? And he goes, well, to shoot people. And maybe that's why you used it. Maybe. Seems reasonable. You see, I've never had a gun in my hand before, and that's what a gun's for, isn't it? Maybe that's why. Sure it is. Yes, that's what I thought of. Production for use. It's simple, isn't it? Very simple. And you can even see in her face that she knows that she's completely manipulated the truth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She doesn't feel good about it. Yeah. Well, and this is what's weird. I, she wasn't interested in saving this guy's life anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now she kind of feel the difference between her and Walter Burns is that she she has feelings about the mm -hmm. bad things that are happening. Whereas Walter has zero. He doesn't care at all. Yeah, yeah. But she doesn't stop them. Nope, she doesn't. Nope. Um, we're back at the press is, room. Oh, is this your first hint that she's not going to go with 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 Bellamy and she's going to go with uh, Cary Grant by the end of the movie? Do you remember that being your hint that, oh, in this moment, like here's a moment for her to make a stance, but she doesn't? Uh, or is this, what do you think? Here's how I would put it i think i don't mm -hmm. think i ever think she's going to go with ralph bellamy <laughs> i don't know that she's going to go with cary grant 
Right. But there's no, I mean, Ralph Bellamy is nothing like her. He doesn't understand her. He's not, Mm -hmm. she is so far beyond him. There's not, there's not a thought in my head that she's going to end up with him. It's more Mm -hmm. that I'm just wondering what's going to happen with Walter Burns. Yeah, true. Is she going to end up back with him? Because again, he is a horrible person. So it's not like we're Mm -hmm. going, boy, I hope she ends up back with Walter Burns. That's true. That's true. I wonder what the pro's going to do without Hildy. Yeah, do you suppose Walter Burns will ever let her go? I don't know. Remember what he did to Bill Fenton when he wanted to go to Hollywood, had him thrown in jail for arson. Forgery. Was that it? Yeah. By the way, there's a moment where there's a guy looking up someone's, a woman's skirt as she goes up the stairs. Mm. These reporters are also terrible people. They're terrible people. They're terrible people. And in comes Molly. And Mm. Molly is... Her name is Molly Malloy, and she was a yeah. witness. She's the only person who knew Earl Williams. And she is angry with the reporters because they printed nothing but lies about her and Earl Williams. If you was worth breaking my nails on, I'd tell your face wide open. What do you swore about, sweetheart? Wasn't that a swell story we gave you? Yeah, what do you want? I never said I loved Earl Williams and was willing to marry him on the gallows. You made that up. And about my being a soulmate and having a love nest with him. Well, you did, didn't you? Yeah, been sticking around that cuckoo ever since they threw him in the death house. That's a lie. Everybody knows you're your girlfriend. She only met her Williams once. He was really upset. She invited him into her house and kind of they just talked. He never tried to made a move on her, never laid a hand on her. And that's mm-hmm. the only time that she saw him. And yeah. it sounds like they painted all these stories about that. It, it was a love nest. Maybe she was a prostitute, like and, and just these horrible things. And then and they're just making jokes about her. Yeah. And turning their back on her and ignoring her. And it is so hard to watch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Hildy's right there. She enters in the middle of this and yeah. she is watching it and she knows that it's horrible. Why don't you go see your boyfriend? Yeah, he's got a nice room. You won't have it long. He left a call for 7 a.m. <gasps> and then as this is happening, they hear the thump of the gallows again. No wonder a bowl of lightning don't come down and strike you on this. And as she's looking at the gallows where Earl Williams is going to hang, they say, They're fixing up a pain in the neck for your boyfriend. <sighs> Jesus. Come on, Molly, let's get out of here. Are they inhuman? I know, they're newspaper men. All they've been doing is lying. All they've been doing is writing lies. I know, Molly. Why won't they listen to me? Why won't they listen to me? At this moment in watching the movie, yeah, yeah. Karen asked me to pause it. Yeah. Because she was so upset. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because she turned on the movie at this point, like really was just like this, these people are horrible. And, and it goes in this question we've asked many times of like, are the reporters speaking the filmmakers point of view? Is this their viewpoint? Is the filmmaker Mm -hmm. uncaring? And I said, wait till the next moment. Cause I thought I saw what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. We hit play Mm -hmm. again. And then you see all of these reporters feel really shitty. Yep. You know, it's silent. The, the card game they were so happily playing when they were being mean to Molly, they don't want to play anymore. Yeah. It's awkward. Gentlemen of the press. And she shakes her head. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think's happened? This scene you could analyze for about four hours, yeah. to be honest with you, I think, because so much is happening here. You look at the time frame. This is 1940, right? We're on the precipice, without knowing it, of World War II. We're on the precipice of it only a year later. We're in this trend. We're in this where women are going to go work in these factories. Rosie the Riveter is on the horizon right. here. 
for our society, right? The suffragette movement was in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Women are becoming a more powerful, vocal part of our society, demanding their vote, demanding their equality, demanding their presence in the world. And you look at what this scene uh, uh, portrays, and it is the absolute dismissal, uncaring, unfeeling approach by a, a group of bitter old white dudes to a woman's a character being assassinated in order to sell papers in order to make the money and ladies and gentlemen i know we may love newspapers or news organizations now but the if you go back and look at the beginnings of a lot of these newspapers there was a lot of yellow journalism a lot of muckraking william randolph hearst decided what was in newspapers who was famous who was not famous who was popular who wasn't so many people made unsavory deals so the newspapers have rarely been pure things now it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get or at least call some of your information from the new york times or the washington post or wherever it is you want to go get to your your news from it just means you've got to be aware of where uh, and and the history of newspaper reporting and these guys still do exist out there ladies and gentlemen guys like what you just saw do still exist and not just in the world of newspapers in any business in any situation and certainly movie studios we're discovering now steve in the post me too post black lives matter situation how many of these executives were in positions sitting around making the same kind of comments about young female actresses making the same kind of situations dismissing them seeing them as sex objects having no issue putting out press releases that denigrate their character, Ashley Judd and uh, Mira Sorvino being two of the most recent cases with the Weinstein situation where Weinstein was going behind their back and talking uh, about them purposefully in a negative way so that people wouldn't hire them. There's all kinds of that stuff that happens, sadly, when uh, you see these dudes in these positions who have some semblance of power because they have no real power in their own fucking lives and they do this. And it's a horrible thing to watch. And poor Molly, who's not 100% telling the truth, by the way, poor Molly, which we find out later, poor Molly is trying to fight to get them to listen. Richard Jewell, the Clint Eastwood movie is a great example of this as an extended movie. Well, and I I think it's, you know, let's expand this beyond newspapers. Is Mm -hmm. that how often on the news is there some horrible tragedy like a mass shooting or something and they pick at it and pick at it and pick at it and put it out and why are they going over it and over and over again? Because they know know it keeps eyeballs. And Again, not trying to make this in any way political, but if you watch uh, networks that have a certain political point of view, they will warp and shape the news to fit that point of view, to get their audiences angry and to keep them angry. And they know, they know that they're saying some things that aren't true or they know that they're following certain talking points. And I think this scene is so interesting because the silent moment after Molly leaves is Mm -hmm. every one of these reporters knows that they've been a scumbag. Yep. They all know it. And yet they're all going to keep doing it. They're going to keep doing it throughout this entire movie, Mm -hmm. which is how can I sell some papers? They don't Mm -hmm. care about the truth. They don't care about this person's life. They don't care about the election. They don't care about the Red Scare. They don't care about anything except a scoop. 
Yeah, and I I don't I would push back a little bit and say that they don't care or that they care, but they don't care enough enough to stop doing it. They don't care enough to go and find another job. They don't care enough to try to risk being fired to write different things uh, because they know that if they start to write even handed pieces, they'll get fired. Uh, and their job is to create sensationalism so they can sell their newspapers. And it's a horrible truth. And you see it now, even on on these websites that are hunting for clicks, desperate for clicks, purposefully creating antagonistic pieces or antagonistic things. And I guarantee you, brother, that there are people who work at these news organizations, no matter what side of the political aisle you're from, who when they do a piece or do some reporting on a piece, when the camera's turned off, or when they're driving home or when they're waking up at 3 a.m. with this horrible feeling about what their lives have become, they have those same moments as well as we just saw from these newspaper men when Molly is ushered out of the door. I, I think it's such a telling moment. And the thing is hmm. that they it's also that they were unified in being mean to Molly. Like yeah. they all made a silent agreement that none of us can be nice to her. And now yeah. they're unified in feeling bad about it. Um, yeah. And the difference with Walter Burns he wouldn't even feel bad about it. Right. He is a worse person than these reporters are. Now, Hildy gets a call. Oh, hello, Bruce. Huh? You're where? And she runs out, and as she runs out, she steps on the foot of the sheriff, which is uh, Gene Lockhart, who we saw in Miracle on 34th Street. He is the judge. Right. And he is also June Lockhart from Lost in Space's dad. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Okay. Pete, why can't you hang this guy at 5 o'clock instead of 7? Sure, it won't hurt you, and we can make the city edition. Oh, well, now, that's that's kind of raw, Roy. After all, I can't hang a man in his sleep just to please the newspaper. No, but you can reprieve him twice, so the hanging's three days before election, can't you? Well, you can run on a law and order ticket. You can do that, all right. So not only are the newspaper people totally self-interested and only care about Earl Williams in the sense that he will sell papers, but mm-hmm. the sheriff and later we'll see the mayor they only care about Earl Williams in that hanging him will help them get reelected. Yeah. Bruce is in jail. Yes. And he has been <laughs> accused of stealing a watch. Yep. <laughs> By the way, the end of the front page is, and again, Hildy is a man in this case, is that mm-hmm. the Walter Burns character, which is Adolf Manjou, sends Hildy off and he says, you know what? You're such a great reporter. You know, my old boss gave me this pocket watch that's engraved to the greatest reporter I've ever met. And I want you to have it to take on your honeymoon because Hildy in this version goes off on his honeymoon. (laughs) And and Hildy is totally swayed by Walter and thinks he really does care about him. Takes the watch, says, thank you. That means so much. He walks out of the room and Walter calls the police and says, you got to stop Hildy Johnson at the train. That son of a bitch stole my watch. (laughs) That is the last line of the front page. And it was before the Hays Code because you couldn't say son of a bitch after that. Right, right, Um, right. But that son of a bitch stole my watch is a really funny ending (laughs) for a movie. Um, But Hildy threatens, basically threatens the cop with the power of the press to get him out of jail, to get Bruce out of jail. They're in a cab. I can't imagine who'd do a thing like that to me. I can't think of any enemies I have. I'm sure you haven't any, but have you got the check? Oh, yes, I have it right here. <laughs> That's a funny superstition you newspaper people have. And this is also when he realizes that his wallet has been stolen. Yeah. And he's like, oh, man, it was a good thing that you you decided to keep the money. That was really, <laughs> that sure was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> And up in the press room, the reporters are reading Hildy's story. And they're like, yeah. man, she is a good writer. 
She walks in, calls the post. Is that you, Walter? Oh, I've got some news for you. Yes, yes, I got the interview all right, but I've got some more important news. She says to him, write this down, and she says... Now get this, you double-crossing chimpanzee. There ain't going to be any interview, and there ain't going to be any story. And that certified check of yours is leaving with me in 20 minutes. I wouldn't cover the burning of Rome for you if they were just lighting it up. And if I ever lay my two eyes on you again, I'm going to walk right up to you and hammer on that monkey skull of yours till it rings like a Chinese gong. (laughs) (laughs) That, my friend, is some screwball comedy dialogue right there. I agree, a thousand percent. (laughs) Because, of course, she knows that Walter set him up. Totally. And she tear, she tears up the story so Walter can hear it over the phone, and she hangs up the phone and says, And that, my friends, is my farewell to the newspaper game. I'm going to be a woman, not a news-getting machine. But what's interesting is, Hildy, who's been completely smooth throughout the entire movie, at this yeah. moment, she can't get her coat on, and she loses her hat, and she's obviously discombobulated. Because I think yeah. she doesn't want to leave the newspaper business. Right. And I even think on some level she admires Walter's scumbaggery. I, I Yeah, maybe admires. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but eh, maybe. I don't know. It's difficult, you know, because you want to cheer for her. But then at the same time, you, you know what ends up happening. And so you're just like, ah, yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, maybe. Yeah. I, well, we'll get to it. But I like the yeah, more yeah, I yeah. think about this movie, the more well, it goes to your question from the very beginning is, did she really want to leave? Yeah. Right. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think about she never wanted to leave. Yeah, I even right. wonder if this has happened before. Ooh, great question. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, they just got divorced. So, but maybe there have been other men where she's kind of dangled that in front of him or whatever. Or, or, maybe. or maybe she's just quit. But I, I bet she's quit before. Oh. Yeah, you know? I think that's actually probably Or I'm not going to yeah. see you anymore. Or this is, the, you know, you're a terrible person. I'm yeah. leaving. Oh, I'm coming back. Um, <laughs> uh, we see Earl Williams and the sheriff and the alienist and the sheriff and the alienist. They're just talking about publicity they can get out of this. So they're right. scumbags. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, nobody's nobody's redeemable in the movie except for uh, the murderer. Uh, Bell- yeah, the murderer, Ralph Bellamy and Ma- poor Molly. Yeah. yeah. Um. And, and, and we haven't gotten to mother yet. Oh, God. Mother's gone. Um, mother. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, H- Hildy's saying goodbye to the reporters. And then we hear gunfire. And they all rush to the windows. We hear automatic weapons and we hear Earl Williams has escaped. <laughs> and then we have, which is really jarring, these super fast cuts to the reporters calling in the story. Boy, give me the day. Right. Earl Williams just escaped. Yeah, right. Don't know yet. Call you back. Williams took a powder. Went over the wall. I don't know anything yet. Call you back. And I think what's so interesting is when this movie makes stylistic changes, they're really strong because we have a lot of stuff that's playing in one shots or um, where it's just talky, 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 talky. And then when Molly leaves the reporters and it's suddenly quiet. It's powerful. And now this is the same thing where we're doing these quick, quick cuts. It's powerful. Yeah. And of course, Hildy's right back on the case. Walter, Hildy. Oh, just escaped from the county jail. Yeah, don't worry, I'm on the job. (laughs) Because she's a newspaper man. The fact that this, she had this grandstand just a few seconds ago uh, or a couple minutes ago, and this big news story drops in her lap. This is the test. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel the universe does this to all of us. When you're about to make a big move and you're leaving something you've been at for a long time 
and you take that step away from it, like you're actually finally going to leave, something happens that really tests whether you really want to leave and you find out for sure if it is the end and if you're done with that relationship, that job, that situation, or that event in your life. And so this is that moment. So it felt very realistic to me. Yeah, it it reveals who she actually is. Yes. Um, And she tackles the dude who was the guard um, which, by the way, Rosalind Russell runs pretty fast in heels. <laughs> yeah, she, and listen, the, 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 the choreography of that scene with those cars going right yeah. past her. It's great camera work, Steve. I'm sure you know how they did. I'm sure there was like a big long lens and she's, you know, there's way more space between those cars than you think, but the illusion of it so works. Yeah, totally. You know? Absolutely. And yeah. we're back in the uh, press room and reporters are calling in stories and the reporters are having a ball. Mm-hmm. They love this. There's more gunfire uh, and they all run out to cover that. And Hilti, Hildy comes in to talk to Walter because she's actually got the story. Yeah. It cost her $450, all the money that she had in the world. <laughs> well, it's Bruce's money, and I want it back. I'll send the money right down to you. I swear it on my mother's grave. All right. Here's a... Wait a minute. Your mother's alive. <laughs> um, and what we find out is that the alienist was giving the sanity test, and he wanted to reenact <laughs> the crime. And, of course, he needed a gun to reenact the crime. And so the sheriff gave him his gun, and he handed the gun to Earl Williams, and Earl Williams shot the alienist. <laughs> Which, by the way, that scene is in the front page. Oh, they okay. actually just, you see it happen. And here right. you don't see it happen. She also reveals that Bruce is still waiting for her in a taxi downstairs <laughs> and standing behind Walter Burns is a beautiful blonde who he says, I need you to go basically get this guy that's sitting in a taxi. She asks, what's he look like? He says, that fellow in the movies, you know, uh, Ralph Bellamy. Oh, him? Can you handle it? <laughs> Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> there are a number of meta moments in this movie. Uh, for example, Cary Grant says, uh, oh, someone tried to cross me once. His name was Archie Leach. That's Cary Grant's actual real name. <laughs> so there are little things like that throughout the movie. So I'm oh, sorry if you were going to bring that up later, Steve. Sorry. It doesn't but, yeah. matter. $450 or just a second. Louis, wait. I need $450 worth of counterfeit money. Of course, counterfeit money. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a call and Hildy answers it and Bruce is in jail again. <laughs> for mashing and she goes was it a blonde he goes yeah <laughs> <laughs> and now we have a scene between the mayor and the sheriff because mm-hmm. this is ruining their political situation and as they're trying to figure out what to do about it in walks this guy i have a message here from the governor He's the the governor. it was a reprieve for earl williams for who all right can i tell you something yeah this is my favorite scenes in the movie this guy steals the whole fucking totally. movie. i love rosalind russell i love Cary grant this guy steals the every scene he is in. Perfect, perfect casting and acting by this guy. His name is Billy Gilbert, and he is hilarious. Yes. Because they immediately are trying to bribe him to not give them the reprieve. <laughs> you never arrived with this. Yes, I did. Don't you remember? Wait a minute, I came wait. through that door, and I thought he was made? Sheriff Harper. I mean, you, huh? What's your salary? $40 no, Don't cut me off. I'd like to make $350 a month. That's almost $100 a week. No, I couldn't afford that. Who, me? <laughs> You never delivered this. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. You got caught in the traffic or something. No, I came around. Well, pretend you didn't. (laughs) He is hilarious. And we hear that the 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 cops have Earl Williams surrounded at his house, and the mayor says, 
shoot to kill. And the sheriff says to the cop, shoot to kill and offers a $500 reward for the person who kills Earl Williams. Wow. They're all scumbags. Yep. Yeah. Molly, Pettibone, and Earl Williams. That's it. Those are the only nice people. Oh, and Bruce. Pretty much his mom. But Pettibone, Billy Gilbert is, you know, Billy Gilbert in 1940, Billy Gilbert does 15 films, Steve, 15 films in 1940. And the great dictator Mm. is one near the end of the year that he does. So an incredible actor. And he had just been in Destry Rides Again, a Western in 1939. So this guy, just a phenomenally funny actor and kept working up into the 60s. So. Great stuff. Louis shows up with Hildy, and of course, Hildy knows how Bruce got set up. Did you bring that money? Oh, yeah. 400 bucks. 450. All right. You can't blame a guy for trying. You can't blame a guy for trying. Yeah. And she even says, give me Bruce's wallet, too, because she knows he's the guy who picked his pocket. <laughs> of course she does. But she likes him. Yeah, well, because probably she's worked with him for many years. And when she was married to Cary Grant, I'm sure he was was probably at their wedding, for God's sakes. And then after he leaves, in comes Earl Williams through the window with the gun. Put that gun down, Earl. You don't want to shoot me, Earl. I'm your friend, remember? Maybe you're my friend and maybe you're not. But don't come any near. You can't trust anybody in this crazy world. Now, are you shocked by this moment? Like I said earlier, right? This idea of this kind of darkness around the edges of all this banter back and forth. Do you think this is necessary to have these kind of darker moments to kind of accentuate the humor here? I don't I don't I, I don't know how to answer that question because okay. I, uh, spoiler alert. I don't know how I feel about this movie. I, <laughs> I, I, I totally understand why it's an important film. Sure. I totally think they do a great job of doing what they're doing. I think Cary yeah. Grant and Rosalind Russell are great. I think there's all sorts of funny bits. When I got to the end of the movie, I don't know how I felt. I don't know that I liked it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a weird thing to go like, I can admire it and think it's well done. But I didn't go more than any movie we've done in a long time. I don't really want to watch this movie again. Mm. You know? Yeah, maybe okay. 20 years from now, I'll, I'll watch it again and see how I feel about it. But so right. th- these tonal shifts actually really kind of mess me up. OK, you know? yeah. Right. Um, by the way, uh, Hilty Johnson is pretty cool under pressure with a gun being pointed at her. I'm, I'm, I have a feeling it isn't the first yeah. time. And right. I love the moment that she like the phone rings and she's trying to slip the receiver off the hook. Like mm-hmm. that's smart. She tries to make it to the door and, and she goes, you don't want to kill anybody, which he doesn't. Yeah. And then right as she's trying to talk him down, they hear a noise and he turns and just fires that gun. And then she just takes the gun away from him. Yeah. She's brave. Hildy Johnson has got some guts. Yes. But what she doesn't do is turn him in. Mm -hmm. What she doesn't do is try to do the legal thing or the right thing. What she does do is see this as an opportunity for a scoop. Yeah. Uh, And who does she call? But Walter, because she's got... Earl Williams and an exclusive for the post. Mm-hmm. And then Molly comes in. Yeah. And Hildy's trying to get rid of her, trying to get rid of her. And then we hear Molly, don't go. Oh, come in, Molly, drop a chair. And they have, this is what you're talking about, an emotional scene. There, it was real. Their yeah. relationship was real. She just didn't like the way it was portrayed by the press because it made it seem like it was mm-hmm. dirty when in fact there was more innocence to it than they initially uh, presented it to be. 
There's a big roll top desk in the in the press room and Hildy hides Earl inside the roll top desk just as all the reporters come in. And Hildy, of course, is trying to get rid of them and they're roll, rolling up all the windows. And then in comes Mrs. Baldwin, Bruce Baldwin's <laughs> mom. And she is naturally pissed at Hildy. Mother, don't you mother me, playing cat and mouse with my poor boy, keeping him locked up, I making us miss two trains, and you're supposed to be married tomorrow. I'll be with you in five minutes. You Bruce, don't I... have to go with me at all. Just give me Bruce's money. You can stay here forever, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you mother, and that please. murderer you caught. What's that? What say? Because Bruce overheard Hildy talking to Walter about having yeah. the murderer, and Bruce told his mom, and so now his mom knows that Earl Williams is here. Which one of these men is it? They all look like murderers to me. Wait a minute, Hildy. What murder did you catch? They start pressuring Hildy to find out where Earl is, and Molly says she don't know where he is. I'm the only one who knows. And now they're all over Molly. You keep your hands on me. Where is he? What do you want to know for? So you can write some more lies, so you can sell some more papers. Never mind, Dad. And they're advancing on her, and it's scary. All right, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a story. I'll give you a wonderful story. Only this time it'll be true. You'll never find him now. (laughs) Molly Malloy jumps out the window. Yes. My God, this moment. I was watching it, finishing up watching it this morning. And I almost woke up my girlfriend because I go, no, I just literally screamed it in that moment because she, Helen Mack, that's the actress who plays Molly, by the way. Helen Mack does such a great job of making you care for her in such a short amount of time on the screen. You sense her desperation and her sadness and her frustration uh, for uh, herself when she's yelling at the newspaper men as she goes around to each of them trying to beg for their understanding of her situation. And then in this scene, when they, when she's just completely so frustrated by the whole situation and she knows homie is right there. Still the fear of these men advancing on her, um, upsets her so much. And her only way to reclaim the story in a way is for her to control how she goes out. And she goes out in a desperate moment and kills herself. Um, possibly they do say she moves, but I think she does kill herself. And it is uh, her- horrible, dude, just absolutely horrible. Well, because, and again, it's these shifts in tone, you know? Yeah. And, and, and what's weird about the movie is that the movie doesn't really care about Molly. I'll put it that way. Because the fact is, we never hear if she lives or dies. We don't. Just as Walter and Hildy don't actually care about Earl Williams and Molly, mm. Mm. I won't say that the audience doesn't care. I think we do care. But I think- Oh, the, I care. But the movie just turns its camera away from there. It's not, it doesn't follow through on these stories, you know? Yeah, it does. Yeah, well, we don't see the impact of the suicide on their relationship. Mm-hmm. Right, because by the well, we'll get to the end. But by the end, there's no mention of Molly's suicide. There's not. This is just another story, bro. Yeah, and that is uh, heartbreaking. And and that's why I think, in some ways, this movie is actually um, maybe unknowingly a very strong indictment on the newspaper business and on newsmen and women who are involved in producing it. Remember that song from. Uh, Don Henley, Dirty Laundry, mm-hmm. you know, talking about how, you know, it's all about, you know, whatever leads on the evening news, whatever bleeds, if it leads, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. This is all born out of stuff and situations like this. Um, 
And I do want to take a moment to, to give a shout out to Helen Mack because it's a small amount of time she has on screen. She does excellent work. I remember her in the Bob Hope film, Lemon Drop Kid. She was the female lead in Son of Kong, one of the King Kong movies from way back when. Mm. And when she, she stopped doing stuff just a few years later in the late, in the mid forties and became a successful writer, producer and director for radio. Uh, for the next uh, few decades, you know, so shout out to her for finding a new way to hmm. find success in the business. You know, and maybe she herself confronted guys like these dudes who are newspaper men as producers and directors in Hollywood and was like, fuck this. I'm out of here <laughs> and I'm jumped out the window some, and jumped out the window of Hollywood. So but landed on her feet so she could go do something else. That's great. Know? I'm so glad I'm so glad you found out that information about her. I never knew what happened yeah. to her. Um hmm. And at this moment, because she is still moving, all the reporters rush out of the room because now we got a new story. Just as Walter Burns comes in the room, yeah, uh, we hear that you know Earl Williams is in the desk. Let me out! I can't stand it. Keep quiet! You're sitting pretty. Totally uncaring. And then Bruce's mom goes, "Who's in there?" And Walter immediately says, "Shut up!" <laughs> yeah, really strongly too. And turns oh, yeah. to Louie and says, "Take her out of here." <laughs> um, and Louie just picks her up. Lock her up. See if she doesn't talk to anyone. I can't do this. What do I tell him? Tell him it's a case of DT. Don't worry, mother. This is only temporary. <laughs> uh, um, you're you're so right. They just move on to the yep. next situation, man. Jesus. This is war. You can't desert me oh, now. Oh, get off that trapeze. You've got your story right over there on the desk. Go on, smear it all over the front page. Joe Williams captured by the Morning Post. And this scene, man, he just basically aggressively advances on her. Yeah. Drives her all the way around the room, pressuring her to get back on the job and write this story. This isn't just a story you're covering. It's a revolution. This is the greatest yarn in journalism since Livingston discovered Stanley. It's the other way around. <laughs> and because the thing is, this could be taking down a government. If I didn't have your best interest at heart, you think I'd waste my time arguing with you? You've done something big, Hilda. You stepped up into a new class. Huh? Even though a woman just jumped out the window, even though her fiancé is in prison, even though... Literally, a gangster just put her future mother-in-law on his shoulder and kidnapped her and is going to say she had, like, the DTs or something. She's no. liking this idea. Well, would it stop that acting? Huh? We got a lot to do. Oh, you're talking. This was like, she's she is a better person than Walter Burns. But not by but much. Not by much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's a newspaper yeah. man. Can I call the mayor a bird of prey? Call him anything you like. How about the time he had his house painted by the fire department? Give him the word. Uh -huh. Hello, Duffy, get set. We got the biggest story in years. Earl Williams captured by the Morning Post exclusive. Yeah. There's so many times where multiple things are going on at the same time in this movie. And so one of the things that's going on is Walter is calling Duffy. That's what I said. The whole front page out. But never mind the European war. We got something a whole lot bigger than that. <laughs> and as this is happening, in comes Bruce. Because yeah. we should say. This apparently this city is very small. Yes. <laughs> and things happen very, very fast. Yes. <laughs> because like you can get <laughs> Walter dispatches the blonde to Bruce in the taxi, and four minutes later he's in jail. You know? Yeah, exactly. And now somehow he has gotten out of jail and is immediately back at this place. Bruce, where's well, mother? She said she was coming up here. Uh, she left. No, I can't hear you, Duffy. Where'd she go? Out someplace. Don't know. Jump the Polish corridor. Hildy, tell me where my mother was going. Uh, she couldn't say. Bruce asks for his money back, and she hands him his wallet and says, You'll find the money in the wallet. He's like, This is my wallet. Where did this mm. come from? 
still totally confused. I'm taking the 9 o'clock train. Did you hear what I said? I said, I'm taking the 9 o'clock train. Oh, Bruce, I put it in here. And there's just chaos everywhere. Yeah, yeah, all over this thing, man. He asks, did you ever love me? Mm. And does she answer him? Nope. I see. I'll keep. I'm like something in the icebox, aren't I? Yeah. You just don't love me. Oh, now that isn't true. Just because you won't listen, you say I don't love you. Now you know that isn't the point at all. What else? The point is that you never intended to be decent and live like a human being. All right, all right. You're just like him and all the rest. Sure, sure. That's what I am. And I love this line, by the way, because Walter's talking about rearranging the newspaper, and he says, "No, no, leave the rooster story alone. That's human interest." Which, again, is still true today. There is still the rooster story or whatever, ver- yep. you know, dog blows bubbles or, you know, just weird thing that will be in, in mm. your local news story. Of course. The squirrel on the on the uh, water skis. Yeah. Uh, Hilly, I uh, don't think you ever loved me at all. Oh, never mind that. You're not working for the advertising well, department. If you change your mind, I'm leaving on the nine o'clock train. Hold on, Hold on. Yes, I am. Instead of trying to change me into something else, I'm no suburban bridge player. I'm a newspaper man. And Bruce leaves. Damn. It's. It's a really shocking moment because this is where you go. You turn on her a little bit right? oh, yeah. as a as a protagonist, because you're watching her essentially. Uh, how can I say this correctly? You're watching her essentially turn from the protector to the attacker on Bruce, where she had been defending Bruce. She had been make, you know, like keeping him out of Walter's grips, you know, trying to save him as much trying to get him paid all, get him out of jail. A couple I mean, remember she was going toe to toe with the person who had put him in jail. The first time she was, she's done all these things to protect Bruce, but this big story pops up this momentary big story pops up. And all of a sudden she forgets all that. And she gets in the zone. She ignores Bruce. She's got to write this story and the things that make her such a great news, newspaper man or newspaper woman um, are the things that uh, push Bruce away. So the things that make her great at what she does are the things that threaten her possibility of having this idyllic married life with kids that she supposedly said she wanted. Uh, And this is where the moment comes where she fully embraces the fact that she is a newspaper man uh, uh, through and through and dismisses poor Walter out into the cult. By the way, I want to say that if anyone thinks that it's been sexist to describe her as a newspaper man, maybe it is, but that's kind of how she describes herself. Right. We're using the terms from the movie. And it it also is, you know, part of what it is, is it's a woman, not just succeeding, but excelling in a quote unquote man's world. Um, And I think that's part of the point the the movie is making. Can I tell you about the crazy epiphany I just had? Please. Hildy Johnson is Michael Mm -hmm. Corleone. And let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. Because The Godfather starts, obviously, we talked as detailed as anyone possibly could about The Godfather. The Godfather yeah. begins with, that's my family, Kay, that's not me. Mm. It begins with Michael Corleone wanting to separate himself from the family business and saying, I'm going to have a normal American life. Yeah. And But the fact is, that isn't just his family. That is him. That is his destiny, where to be. Mm. And that is the same with Hildy Johnson. That Bruce yeah. is Kay. And Hildy Johnson and Walter Burns is is uh, is Vito, yeah, and and Hildy is Michael. <laughs> um, 
And Earl pops his head out again from the desk. Get back in there, you mock turtle. And he does <laughs> three taps on the desk. And that's going to be the signal to prove that it's me. But real quick, this is another one of those meta moments. Because when he knocks on the roll top desks and desk and says, get back in there, you mock turtle. Cary Grant played the mock turtle in the film version of Alice in Wonderland back in the 30s. Oh. So it's a, yeah, so it's a little bit of, there's, that's, I think there's two or three of those kind of weird meta moments uh, in the film. I didn't know that. That's a, that's a great one. How's it coming, hon? Oh, all right, I guess. That, where's Bruce? Bruce? Uh, oh, he went out. Uh, is he coming back here? He Certainly he's coming back. Didn't you hear him? What have you got so far? Let me hear it. Uh. So she didn't even hear any of it. No, she didn't hear any of it. And now in walks a reporter whose desk that is. And, yes. And, and Walter immediately starts to snow him. There was one swell story you had in the paper this morning. Oh, did you uh, did you care for the poem, Mr. Burns? Uh, the poem? Mm. The poem was great. And calls up Duffy and says, we're going to give this guy a job. And the guy's so excited. And he goes, I want you to hustle and write me a story from the point of view of the escaped man. He hides, cowering, afraid of every sound, of every light. He hears footsteps. His heart is going like that. Now get the sense of the animal at bay. Sort of Jack London style? Exactly. And he gets rid of him and calls up Duffy and says, you know, put this guy to work writing poetry. No, no, we don't want him. Just stall him along until the extra's out. Then tell him his poetry smells and kick him downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to hire him and then basically dump him. Fire him the next day or next week. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Hildy remembers that Bruce isn't coming back. Yeah. And then in in comes Louie looking all beat up because apparently the car where he had mother crashed into a police car and he ran from the scene of the accident. And they asked, well, what about mother? And now everything's fine. She's probably squawking her head off in the police station. I don't think she's squawking much. You know what I mean? Don't tell me. Was she killed? And Walter's response, watch Cary Grant in this moment. He says, with a huge smile on his face. Hey, was she? Did you notice? Hmm? <laughs> like he does, Like it wouldn't matter to him. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter to him at all. Nope. It just thinks that's kind of funny. Oh, this is the end. Oh. Well, it's fate, Hildy. What will be, will be. What am I going to say to Bruce? So in this moment, Hildy has a little bit of more feeling than Walter, which isn't a very high standard. And now Hildy gets on the phone to call hospitals to try to find uh, Bruce's mom. Bruce gets on the phone to call wrestlers to get them to carry this desk out. Um, (laughs) And the the head wrestler who's going to carry the desk out is there's some woman that he's interested in. So he's not coming. So Walter gets on the phone with the woman and just threatens her and insults her. Yeah. Now listen, you 10 cent glamour girl. You can't keep putting away from his duty. What's that? You say that again, I'll come over there and kick you in the teeth. Hey, what kind of language is that? She hung up. Now he tries to reach Duffy again, but Duffy's not there because he has diabetes. Diabetes. I ought to know better than to hire anybody with a disease. Hildy's going to leave to find Mrs. Baldwin, and then all the reporters come in. Yeah. And now they are threatening Hildy because they know that she knows something. They're physically manhandling her. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty threatening situation. This felt very much like, um, what are they talking about? Cinna. When Cinna the poet is approached by the people uh, in Julius Caesar, when they Mm. approach him and surround him, and then, you know, the threatening nature with which they do that. So, yeah. And then in comes the sheriff, and Walter (laughs) imperiously tries to get him out. And they're continuing to ask about Williams. And as they grab her and are threatening the third degree, she kind of fights her way out and the gun drops out of her purse. This happens to be the gun that Williams used to shoot his way out with. Oh, my good man, are you trying to make me out a liar? I ought to know my own gun, oughtn't I? 
And now all the reporters know that the sheriff handed Earl Williams' gun. Yeah. <laughs> Johnson, you're under arrest. What? And you too, Burns. Who's under arrest? Listen, you insignificant, square-toed, pimple-headed spy. Do you realize what you're doing? And then in comes Mom. Why, he was in charge of the whole thing. He told them to kidnap me. Excuse me, madam. Are you referring to me? Well, you know you did. Now, look here, madam. Be honest. If you were out joyriding, plastered, or got into some scrape, why don't you admit it instead of accusing innocent people? Awful. He is awful. And this is, again, this is like... What do they call that? Where they, he's creating a completely different. He's creating alternate, alternate, alternate facts. Alternative facts. That's he's what he's, he is. He's like he's gaslighting her. He's gaslighting. Yes, absolutely. He is gaslighting her. Great point, Steve. And I can tell you something more. Yes. I can tell you why they did it. Uh, yeah. sure? They had some kind of a murder in here, and they were hiding. Oh, hiding it. And this moment, I don't think, makes any sense. Which is, Cary Grant standing next to the desk says, "Calls her a cockeyed liar while tapping the desk three times." Yeah, why does he tap the desk? Here's why I think it doesn't work. Okay. Because I was thinking about it, because I think what it's supposed to be is that he accidentally or unthinkingly taps the desk. Right. But that's not what it looks like. It looks yeah. like he consciously and purposely ta- taps the desk, which makes no sense. And what I think it is, is Cary Grant throughout the entire movie has been doing things that are fake Yeah. in a way that cluing the audience into that he's doing this on purpose, but the other people in the room don't see that it's fake. And right. I think he just kind of did it that way here. And yeah. that's what makes the moment not work, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Actually, yeah. But now all all the cops draw their guns and the sheriff has his guns and they're going to just shoot right through the desk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as this is happening, all the reporters, again, thrilled, are on the phone. And we have these quick, quick cuts of them narrating. Something coming up. We got you covered, Williams. Have it in a minute. Don't try to move. Any time now. I'll count three. It's hot. One. Ready for an emergency. Two. Any second now. Three. Up with it. I got you, Williams. Go ahead. Shoot me. Williams was unconscious when they opened the desk. Williams put up a desperate struggle, but the police overpowered him. He offered no resistance. He tried to shoot out with the cops, but his gun wouldn't work. Break through a whole court in the police. It's so sad. Yeah. Because nobody cares about this guy. Nope. The least important thing to all these characters is whether Earl Williams lives or dies. Yeah. Yes. A thousand percent agree with you, brother. Walter is still trying to call in the story and they handcuff Walter and Hildy because they've obstructed justice. They've aided and abetted. I mean, they have committed real crimes. Listen, you're talking to the Morning Post. Oh, power of the press. <laughs> and as this is happening, as it looks like everything is over for Hildy Johnson and Walter Burns, in walks Pettibone, your favorite yep. character. <laughs> With an open umbrella. <laughs> Here's a reprieve. And by the way, the mayor is here now, too. Oh, you can't bribe me. My wife's out of here, you. Oh, no, I won't. Here's the reprieve. And you could see just all the power shift back to Walter. Yep. Walter is talking like a child. Out of the mouths of babe. Hi, babe. He's like in a totally different movie. Oh, yeah. A different reality. And it's so funny. Now the mayor completely switches gears. Why, if this unfortunate man, Williams, has really been reprieved, I'm personally tickled to death, aren't you, Pete? Oh, go on. You'd hang your own mother to be reelected. That's a horrible thing to say about anybody, Miss Johnson. And Walter turns to Pettibone and says, let's have your story, Mr. Pettibone. Well, 19 years ago, I married Mrs. Pettibone. Skip all that. Well, she wasn't Mrs. Pettibone then. She was one of the Jones Sheriff? This document is authentic, and Earl Williams has been reprieved. And immediately apologizes because he is trying to save his political career in this moment. Yeah. In addition to him apologizing and sucking up to Walter, he thro- throws the sheriff completely under the bus. 
And now we're left with Walter and Hildy alone laughing. That's the worst jam we've been in a long time. And this is where I think that this is A, happened before, and that Hildy kind of always wanted to come back. She says, Remember the time we stole old Lady Haggerty's stomach off the coroner's position? Well, marvelous. Anytime you need this guy, he's never there. We proved she'd been poisoned, though, didn't mm-hmm. we, Walter? Yeah. So they've done these things before. Oh, yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Un- and yeah. then another interesting moment is... He had to hide out for a week. Do you remember that? Sean Hotel, that... That's where, I mean, how we... Yeah, we could have gone to jail for that, too. You know that. Which means that they had premarital sex in a hotel, and that is where their relationship started. Yep. Never mind that it's employee boss, but, you know, whatever. And then Walter completely surprisingly says, well, you better get going. Where'd I go? But to Bruce, of course. I see you having a strong reaction. (laughs) Yeah, this is out of nowhere. All of a sudden... And just like I said with that song in uh, in, uh, uh, Company... Company? He is like all of a sudden being like, oh, now that she's willing to come back now, maybe I don't want her. And let me be noble here and send her on her way. He's not doing something that's that I know that maybe they're trying to make him a little bit noble at the end. It's not noble what he's doing. He's a he's a shit heel, And he's just doing these terrible. He's doing this moment now to kind of mess. He's essentially manipulating. He's messing with her mind uh, the whole time in this movie. And then right at the end here as well. Yeah, he's totally, I mean, I don't think he's doing anything noble at all because he mm. knows that Bruce is carrying counterfeit money and he's going to get arrested again. Yes. Is that this is all, it's the same thing he's done all along. The same old act, isn't it? Try to push me out of here thinking I'll be stupid enough to want to stay. Which mm-hmm. means that this has happened before. Yeah. No, I know I deserve that, Hilly, but this is one time you're wrong. Look, honey, I made fun of Bruce and Albany and all that kind of thing. You know why? Why? I was jealous. I was sore because he could offer you the kind of life I can't give you. What I think is great is Cary Grant plays it just at the right level of honest-ish to yeah. make us go, wait, is he saying this? No, mm-hmm. he can't be. This can't be real. Well, is it real? It's right on the <laughs> – and enough that it's convincing of her. Uh, I could stay and do the story and take the train in the morning. Because, of course, she doesn't want to go to Bruce, with Bruce. Right. Come on. Goodbye, dear, and good luck. And he kisses her, turns her around, picks up the suitcase – Starts to send her out. The phone rings and he answers it and says, Hildy Johnson? Oh, she just left. I'm still here. I can take it. And she runs to the phone. Yeah. And it's the police station because Bruce has been arrested for counterfeit money. (laughs) And I love how Cary Grant just kind of tries to ghost out of the room. Yeah, he does. And this is the strangest moment in the movie because she bursts into tears. Yeah. And he's shocked by that. Honey, don't don't cry, please. Oh, come on. I didn't mean to make you cry, honey. What's the matter with you? You never cried before. And she says, sobbing. I didn't know you had him locked up. I thought you were on the level for once. I thought you were just standing by and letting me go off with him and not doing a thing about it. Okay, explain to me exactly what this is. I, I am not Howard Hawks. I can't explain it to you, pal. I have no idea why she's crying here at the end. I have no idea why she's so emotional in this situation and so desperate to be back with Walter with Cary Grant's situation. Unless we look at this in a way more sinister point of view, which is 
that he has completely gaslighted her, messed with her from top to bottom, meant to, uh, mind fucked her into this position where she doesn't know which way is up so he can control her even more going forward. It's actually a, a horrible ending, not a cute, fun, funny ending that maybe some people have felt the, the movie has it for many years. I think it's a more, way more sinister and cynical ending than people think. What about you? So I think, and I should have said the last line of this speech, because she said, I didn't know you had this plan with the counterfeit money. And he says, why do you think I was a chump? I, mean, I thought you didn't love me. I re- wrestled with this a little bit to try to figure yeah. out. And here's what I actually think it is. I do think it's a pretty dark and cynical ending. Yeah. But what I think it is, is that when he made his noble speech at the end about being jealous and sending her off and wanting her to have a, good, a better life, for the first time ever, she believed him yeah. that he was doing this. And she's actually crying because he made her feel like she, like he didn't love her. Mm-hmm. Like everything that he's done, all the scumbaggery through this whole thing, she thought was to get her back. And at yeah. this moment, she's like, he stopped trying to get me back. And that is what upset her. Yeah. Is yeah. that, and, and this is the thing is that, and this is why I go, I don't think she ever wanted to go with Bruce. Yeah. I yeah. think and it, it's almost like, and this is just occurring to me now, is it possible that Bruce was her plan to get him back? To get Walter back? I think that's actually a very good point, Stephen. Probably the closer to the truth because, and by the way, none of us have read reviews on this film. We haven't done our research. We're discovering this film as we discuss it here on The Cinephile. So like uh, there is obviously, Steve did a lot of background research on Howard Hawks and all of that, but like we're discussing this as we go along. So just letting people know that. And as we go into this final moment, I think that's a great point you bring up because remember, she marches him into that newspaper room. She could have easily done that without uh, Ralph Bellamy there at all. She could have just done it by herself, marched into him, told him what the hell was up, and she's gone. But she marched him in there to kind of put it in his face to kind of get his attention. And then she, you know, she ignores him, doesn't sit on his knee and all this. But maybe this is all her plan to get him back by the end here, just a little bit sooner than she anticipated. Uh, and so by the end, when he finally, like, concedes how much he cares about her maybe the whole time all she's ever wanted him to tell her is that he loves her and now he's finally got that commitment and they're going to get married and supposedly have a honeymoon which they're not going to fucking have no Uh, and and it's 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 supposed to be this kind of i think happy ending but actually it's a pretty uncomfortable ending in my opinion well and i'll take it a step further why did she have to come see walter at all yeah there it's was literally no reason. They're divorced. She's marrying this other guy. There is no reason for her to show up at the newspaper, much less bring Bruce there to meet Walter. There's just no yeah. reason for her to do any of that. And I love he calls into Walter calls into Duffy. No, don't worry about the story. Hilly's going to write it. Because she's not quitting. She never intended to. We're going to get married. Oh, <laughs> can we go on a honeymoon this time? Sure. I love, by the way, the way he asked where they want to go. And I love her line delivery on Niagara Falls. (laughs) And he says, great. And we're going to do it. And in the next moment, we find out there's some kind of strike in Albany. Well, isn't that a coincidence? We're going to Albany. I wonder if Bruce can put us up. (laughs) Does Walter help open the door for her, carry her suitcase for her? Nope. Nope. And they walk out and that is the end of his girl Friday. Mm. And I agree with you. It is an unsettling ending. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And what's funny. It's like, my assumption 
is this could happen again. And oh, again, this and again. will happen again. Yes, yes. Um, and we don't, you know, their relationship is going to continually be this back and forth and leaving each mm-hmm. other and taking each other back and messing with everybody else. We don't find out what happens to Earl Williams. Nope. We don't find out what happens to Molly Malloy. We don't actually care about the election. We don't care about really, th- th- it's just a completely amoral movie. Mm-hmm. It was a big hit, unsurprisingly. It did not yeah. get any uh, nominations for anything, as far as I know. One of the key pillars of the screwball co- comedy, along with 20th Century bringing up Baby, it happened one night. Yeah. It was made into a radio play with Claudette Colbert, and I think Fred McMurray did it mm-hmm. on the Lux Radio Theater. It was remade, and I to- or kind of remade. I totally forgot about this. In 74, the front yep. page, the original yep. version was done. With Walter uh, Matthau. With Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon and directed yep. by Billy Wilder. Yes. And Susan Sarandon played the uh, fiance. <laughs> oh, I don't wow. know that I've ever seen it. Have you ever seen it? No, I've never seen that one. A loose remake is Switching Channels with Burt Reynolds and Kathleen Turner and Christopher Reeve. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Wow. Um, okay. And one of the interesting things about it was no one ever renewed the film's copyright. So it Mm -hmm. was one that people just made all these 16 millimeter prints. So it played everywhere because it was free. Uh, And it gets a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Wow. That is all the information I have on His Girl Friday. Okay. Do you have final thoughts? Yeah, this is, uh, I I love that we went back in time to go, uh, you know, explore one of these pillars of uh, a certain genre of film, the screwball comedy. It was great to be able to see a young Cary Grant. It's great to embrace Rosalind Russell's power as an actress. I mean, this is the reason to watch the movie is Rosalind Russell. Yeah, Cary Grant does nice work, but at times he seems a bit unbelievable with some of the rapid fire dialogue delivery. I think he's better with this kind of character and arsenic and old lace with that kind of situation. And, um, but Rosalind Russell is the reason to watch this movie. And she's such a powerhouse, uh, throughout. She ended up, I think, winning a Tony in the 1950s as well. So this is a woman with an incredible amount of, of acting acumen. Uh, and so go and enjoy this film if you want to enjoy incredible performance. And yeah, maybe some of you who loved this film in the past, I wonder how you'll feel about our analysis of the film now as we look at it. Try to keep an open mind. Try not to be like, oh, you guys don't get the jokes. Try to keep an open mind here and see the uh, point of view that we have walking into this thing all these years later. Uh, but definitely one to watch. I think Hedda Hawks does a fantastic job directing it. The script is great. Uh, and uh, the performance Performances throughout are a joy to watch, even if there's a little bit of darkness on the edges. I I agree with everything you've said. And I mm. want to go back to the point that you made earlier about why it's important to watch classic films. Mm. As I said, I admired it and didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Mm-hmm. And so while I'm not drawn to go back and watch this again, this is an important movie. Mm-hmm. And there's so much in it to admire. And the performances are fantastic. The overlapping fast dialogue is amazing. The jokes are really good. It's really well constructed. I just couldn't find myself liking it. And sometimes mm-hmm. becoming a cinephile, that means consuming some things or studying some things that are maybe a little bit out of your comfort zone. Yep. And so while I know everyone listening loves when we do big popular films and we love doing them too, I also think, you know, do yourself a favor and go back and check out some of these screwball comedies because the foundation for like the modern sitcom, the foundation for some romantic comedies today, a lot of these movies are made by people who loved the classic screwball comedies. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's what we think of his Girl Friday. We'd love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files, on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. Subscribe to the show at iTunes, on YouTube, on Spotify. Leave your comments on YouTube. Particularly, we'd love to hear how you felt about this movie. If, if it was your first time watching his Girl Friday or your first time in the screwball comedy genre, please leave reviews on iTunes. They're really, really helpful. I think we're at 997 reviews right now. Come on, people. So let's get it over a thousand. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. We just released a big shorts compilation. I hope you enjoyed that. And there's tons more shorts available through Patreon for you to check out. You can buy his Girl Friday along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can listen to my other show, Enterprise Incidents on Star Trek. And coming up in an episode, maybe about a month from now, John Rocco will be our <laughs> guest on Enterprise Incidents and it's great stock talking Star Trek with him. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. If you want to listen to my other two podcasts, uh, the top 10 and the geek buddies, those are there for you to download as well. If you want to roll over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, you know, if you've been hesitating or, you know, we're kind of maybe turned off a little bit by some of the politics on the YouTube channel, that has moved away from it. It's going to move into basically being a very uh, entertainment-based YouTube channel. So please come back and give it a chance and see if you enjoy the content that we are doing over there. And I'm sure to have Steve Morris back onto the channel a few more times to do some reviews or do some conversations. I've got a lot of ideas for how I want to change the channel going forward to be more entertainment-based, more conversational. And I hope you guys come and take a chance on that. Well, and I can't wait to see all the changes you make. There's always exciting things going on on your YouTube channel. And I think that is it for this week. We'll be back next time with another great film on The Cinephiles.